this species of veriformin has been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a hundred this thing. Why? It doesn't apply. They're totally wrong. This is a warm-bodied creature. This thing doesn't live in a swamp. This thing's got, what, a 25, 27-foot neck? A brachiosaur on 30. The T-Rex is 32 miles an hour. T-Rex? Mm-hmm. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Wow. Put your, put your head between your knees. <laughs> Dr. Grant. My dear Dr. Sattler. Welcome to Jurassic Park. life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 201, Jurassic Park. Almost shocking that it's taken us this long to get to. I guess maybe we've been saving it. Certainly, when I think about my top movies of all time, this is always on there. There's going to be a lot to say here. Yeah, this is... One of the defining movies in our lives, probably, in a lot of ways. Just a simpler time. Oh, yeah. Where you could be wowed by a movie. Yeah. The magic. It does harken back to that time period that we off-reference on this show of that core period in the 90s when, like, merchandising and marketing were just dominating the culture, which I now miss. (laughs) 
Yeah, you would spend up to six months of a year being wrapped up in one major movie where a movie would come out it would be the biggest movie in the country and it would be in theaters for like anywhere from four to six months sometimes longer i think when we talked about et another spielberg movie we mentioned how that was like in the theaters for like a year oh i know it just was a a different time now avengers is the highest grossing movie of all time and it it's still out of the theaters in like three months and like a movie being like this much of a phenomenon had such a trickle down effect on so many other things mcdonald's is stoked that they're able to like get four different happy meal toys you're a kid you're like i gotta get all four of those so i gotta keep getting happy meals until i (laughs) you know what i mean it's just like this vicious cycle that everything's like feeding off of okay so usually at the top of the show we do a little spiel about what's been going on whatever a little bit of the housekeeping for the podcast so we'll just breeze through it real fast follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple Podcasts or podbean if you enjoy the show please give us a rating and review (laughs) on apple podcasts we gotta (laughs) i'm gonna turn into like trump we gotta (laughs) we gotta combat the fake news giving us one star (laughs) There's people conspiring against this podcast. Yeah, There's right. enemies. That review is under dispute. <laughs> anyway, we are happy to be back after a little bit of a break. We're excited to do this movie. It's going to be a big, long, crazy episode. And so I don't think there's really any need to dwell on anything except jump into it. Directed by Steven Spielberg. That's right. One of the all-time greats. We've now done several of his movies. Yeah, and there are plenty more to do. Came out in 1993 in the summer. I was nine years old at the time. I was six. It is based on the 1990 novel by Michael Crichton, who also was paid a little bit extra money to write the first draft of a screenplay. And then David Kep came in and reworked it. The budget was $63 million. The box office has gone on to be over a billion dollars. It briefly held the record for the highest grossing film of all time before Titanic broke the record in 97. And it spawned four sequels so far of varying quality. There is another sequel on the way coming out in 2022, I believe. Do we know how much Crichton's original adaptation veered from his source material novel and then kept got in the mix and started moving things around or i don't know i would speculate that it was probably closer to the book than the finished product yeah but i'm not entirely sure on what the the differences were for me at that age being a kid that was obsessed with dinosaurs ever since i could be obsessed with anything same actually tons of toy dinosaurs when i was a kid dinosaur books yeah, books, Land knew all the names. Time. <laughs> Land Before Time, Denver the Last Dinosaur. That's right. Dinobots. Dino Riders. Basically, Dinosaur Anything was completely obsessed with it, which is not unique. I think a lot of boys are at that age. But yeah, it was a hot time in the culture for dinosaurs. When I first found out about Jurassic Park coming out, it was just mind-blowing to me. It was like someone had went into my brain and made a movie out of what I would fantasize movies should be. I, yeah. There was nothing more exciting than this. And the anticipation before seeing this is almost unrivaled in my life, yeah. really. 
to this day, it's still one of the most rewatchable movies ever made. In every summer blockbuster season, I'm always hopeful. I just want something to live up to what Jurassic Park was for me, which is probably impossible and will probably never happen. But that's yeah. like the bar for like a, an original summer movie. And obviously this is based on a novel, but I'm just talking about not part of an existing franchise. Did you see this in the theater? I did not. However, probably like the first year after on VHS. I was pretty young. It was just one of those things that even at six or going on seven years old, so many people own this on VHS. So yeah. kids my age had it <laughs> or like their parents had it. And I watched it like pretty, yeah, probably in 94. I'm pretty sure that this movie was the first PG-13 movie I saw in theaters. I ended up seeing it twice over the course of a few months because as we mentioned that just stayed in the theaters forever and it really transported me to a world of magic and wonderment in a way that movies so rarely do nowadays and that's partially on just getting older and partially on I think sort of a, a differing mindset when it comes to making these big blockbuster movies. I love the use of, of practical effects versus CGI, which so many of these big budget movies now rely so heavily on CGI. And it just, it doesn't feel like you're in a real world scenario, but you go back to this and it a hundred percent, you know what I mean? They, they would not make a movie like this now that's not completely filled with CGI and, and has this. Well, yeah, we know that for feel. a fact because right. they've done it four times <laughs> since. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything about Jurassic Park just permeated the culture. It was a movie that not only your friends and siblings and people in your immediate peer group knew about, but like your parents knew about it. They did specials on 2020 talking about the revolutionary technology used in the movie, the animatronics, and the the new CGI that they sort of melded together to bring us this world of dinosaurs and we'll talk about the sequels more later but the dinosaurs in jurassic park which came out 27 years ago are better looking than any of the other movies including ones that came out in 2015 and 2018 and it's not even close for me for spielberg i think jurassic park is the perfect combination of jaws and et it's like he took sort of the scary monster movie feel of Jaws where people get killed. There's this uncontrollable nature. It's very primal in that sense. Right. And mixed it with the magic and wonder of an E.T. Sort of the soaring musical score. Oh, yeah. The, the joy of believing in the possibility of something this special. And it, it captures the imagination of kids specifically because kids are inherently very interested in dinosaurs more than adults and will also buy into something like this easier. And for people that grew up with this movie, I think it's one of the most important movies in oh, our yeah. lives, probably. And I think, you know, to say that this movie is better than Jaws, I, I don't know that I would say that, but, like, it holds a special place that something yeah. like Jaws couldn't even touch. Well, it's, it's just like, something special. That's what's crazy about Spielberg. It's kind of like he brought us the summer blockbuster, then sort of raised the bar on it. Yeah. Before Crichton's novel was even published, four studios put in bids for its film rights. So Crichton's material was sort of a hot commodity at the time, and when people found out about this, they immediately were like, this will be a movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. 
And I don't remember which studio was matched with which director, but I know there was a bid in that would have had Tim Burton doing it. There was a bid in that would have Richard Donner doing it, Joe Dante doing it. But Universal backed Spielberg to acquire the rights for $1.5 million before its publication wow. in 1990. James Cameron has also stated that he had an interest in the project, but realized once he saw the finished product that he would not have been the right man for the job. He would have approached it more like aliens, and he realized that kids relate to dinosaurs, and it wouldn't have been fun, his version. Like, it would have been more of a war or something. Yeah, which would be interesting. (laughs) I would have been interested. But, yeah, it's hard to imagine anyone taking a stab at this and it being as good as this version. Spielberg was actually in the very early stages of pre-production for a movie called ER based on a Michael Crichton novel as well. When he first heard about the Jurassic Park book, Spielberg dumped the ER project to go off and make the dinosaur movie. He then circled back later to ER and got it off the ground as a television series where it went on to become a huge hit. Crichton was paid an additional 500 k to adapt the novel for the screen. David Kep wrote the final draft, which... There are some nice things, like he took much of the novel's exposition and sort of condensed it in a very easy, fun way, which we'll get to when we go through the film itself. And he also eliminated a lot of the violence and made some changes to the characters. There were 25 months of pre-production. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was a huge undertaking because they were basically attempting something that had never been done before in a lot of ways in terms of the scale of special effects and 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 the combination of different types of effects. The sets that had to be built for this, it almost feels like they built an entire like theme park for this movie. In a way, Jurassic Park ruined movies because... (laughs) It could never be this good again? No, because it taught the lesson that going for the home run swings is where it's at. Oh, yeah. Because in order to do this movie right... In a way that Heaven's Gate didn't... (laughs) In order to do this movie right, in the way that Spielberg wanted to do it, they were going to have to spend a ton of money. Yeah. And so it became, well, if we invest a lot of money in this, this could be a home run swing. Spared no expense. And get the huge box office results, which is what it got. It's like, it it started that mindset of like, well, if we're going to do this movie, let's try to make it the biggest movie of all time. And I think that they're still chasing that mindset now, and so they're only interested in projects that costs like a hundred or two hundred million dollars that they think might make like over a billion. Right. Which is sort of a a bad way to well, look at movies thing. in general. Yeah, I mean you have to have the right vision. I mean, how many you certainly look at a guy like Christopher Nolan, you're like, okay, I could give this guy a shitload of money, he's probably gonna spin it into something magical here. But like I don't think every director can do that. Well, no, and part of the results of this, one of the byproducts is that the idea of filmmaking became like less of a director's medium. Because now it's like you have to conform to what Disney or whoever wants in order to maximize the possibility of profit. So something like Avengers, the new one, the latest one that broke the record for the highest grossing movie, that is a complete success in their mind, regardless of the quality of the film. Because the whole concept is like, how can we make the most money possible? Avengers and the Marvel stuff is kind of a bad example, though, just because it's all connected and they like theoretically were building this whole universe that would lead up to a climactic movie but even if you took out the superhero element of it it, it's it just squeezed out like the adult oriented 
15 to 30 to 40 million dollar movies like those movies just almost don't exist at all and it's not like jurassic park or spielberg's fault but sort of the aftermath of this idea of well it makes more sense for us to spend a ton of money to try to make 1.5 billion than to spend 25 million and hope it breaks even or hope we make like a total profit of like 5 to 10 million after we recoup expenses so they're like Let's all go all in on these huge blockbuster home run swings. You know, and that sucks, but what can you do? Yeah, I know. It does Of suck. course people are going to try to replicate Jurassic Park because it's fucking awesome. That's right. And speaking of, like, the appeal to kids in this movie, one of the things that I think is, like, so great about it and the impact that it had on me as a kid is you see this movie as a kid and you're like, holy shit, this was horrible and, you know, people were killed and everything went off the rails. But at the end of it, I was still just like, Man, I wish this theme park existed. I just oh, yeah, wanted definitely. it. You know what I mean? Like, even after everything horrific that happens, you're like, I just so badly want this to be real and to be able to go there. Jurassic Park was filmed in California and Hawaii for much of 1992. That's right. For a long time, I was always like, yeah, this is Jurassic Park. This is what it looks like. And then all of a sudden, the show Lost comes around, and it, it started to kind of capitalize. <laughs> it's like on the Hawaii look. Yeah. Spielberg famously oversaw post-production via phone and video while he was in Poland filming Schindler's List. So, (laughs) yeah, mentally it was sort of taxing on Spielberg to get into the mindset of making a movie like Schindler's List and then at the end of the day being like, I gotta answer questions about dinosaurs. Yeah, I know, it is weird. It's like a weird combo. It's kind of a dramatic switch between. Yeah, but I think the studio was willing to pay for Schindler's List if he did jurassic park first so he was able to get like the financial backing for that if he agreed to make this movie which he was going to anyway but just the order of doing it and he wanted to to get schindler's list made as fast as possible but that is kind of crazy though when you talk about having however long you said of pre-production well yeah that's the thing i think when you're a popular director and you're definitely going to have future projects and you've got a lot of things i think a lot of directors and people of Spielberg's level end up with a lot of irons in the fire and it's just a matter of when all of the things come together That's as right, to like yeah. what order they're going to be made in and all of that stuff. The dinosaurs of Jurassic Park were created with groundbreaking computer generated imagery by Industrial Light and Magic and also with life-sized animatronic dinosaurs built by Stan Winston's team. There are only 15 minutes of dinosaur footage in the entire film. Nine minutes are of Stan Winston's animatronics, and six minutes are of the ILM CGI. Okay. Which is perfect. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that they didn't really follow in the rest of the movies. There's probably way more dinosaur footage in every other Jurassic Park, and yet it doesn't make them better. Yeah, but you listing off the minutes like that comes as a surprise. You, You feel like the dinosaurs are in it more than that, which is a testament to the movie. Yeah, it's the effectiveness and the anticipation of seeing them again that right. sort of hangs over the parts where they're not in. And Spielberg came up, or, or Kep, a combination of the two, came up with exciting scenes that don't feature dinosaurs necessarily. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it when we get to it, but the, the first time when they're at the, the raptor cage, or you can't see anything, just like the bushes moving and you hear the noises. Yeah. Like, it's done so well. It, I mean, it feels like you're seeing them, basically. Another big thing that Jurassic Park was innovative in is the sound. And Spielberg and company formed the creation of DTS, originally 
digital theater systems, which specialized in the surround sound format. I think George Lucas helped his buddy out here and was sort of overseeing this as well. And as far as Academy Award recognition, this is where Jurassic Park really hit hard was with sound. I mean, it was sort of another revolutionary technological achievement. Now, not to get into a whole awards ceremony bullshit thing, which we always do, but (laughs) Jurassic Park should have been nominated for way more shit than it ended up being nominated for. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to think. I don't know what won in 93. Schindler's List. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but like, that's hard to argue. Winning or not winning, it should sure. have been nominated for I, more I agree. stuff. That's it was only thing. had I mean, three nominations, and it it's won a, in all the categories it was nominated in. It's a monumental movie. So, as we brought up in the Halloween episode, there's a cinematographer named Dean David Cundy. Lee Who? <laughs> David Lee Wallace or whatever. Oh, Tommy Lee Tommy Wallace? Lee Wallace no, yeah. he wasn't the cinematographer for Halloween, but Dean Cundy was, and he also became one of Spielberg's guys, and he's the cinematographer for Jurassic Park. That's awesome. I didn't know that. John Williams' score. Uh, epic. John Williams has a lot of iconic scores. He's probably I'd say so. yeah. one of the most or the most famous music composer for movies ever with Star Wars sure. shit and Jaws and Harry Potter and tons of huge movies. But for me, I, I don't know, yeah. Jurassic Park might be my favorite of his, which is yeah. saying a lot. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. In terms of most iconic, it's hard to go past Star Wars, but I think the score for this movie just fits so well in that feeling of wonder. It's always hitting the right notes at the right times of the movie. Yeah, it just it gets you like really in the mindset and in a weird way contributes to how rewatchable the movie is because the the music is always going to suck you in. Yeah. I can remember talking to Lindsay's friend and she was saying that she went to a live, they played the movie Jurassic Park with like a live orchestra there playing the music. That would be awesome. (laughs) I would love to do that. There was also an insane $65 million marketing campaign deals with a hundred companies to market a thousand products it was everywhere but it was everywhere in a way maybe this was just because i was a kid but it didn't feel oppressive it just felt fun like it was fun to see all the toys and all of the shit everywhere there were cool collector's cups from mcdonald's yeah. with like pictures from the movie on them or <laughs> yeah. whatever it was just very exciting oh, for know. a kid I loved it, and I wanted all of the things. I mean, I guess part of it is there is just such a darkness to these people just, like, marketing to children, like, so hard. But I got to say, it was effective. On May 7th, 1995, 68.12 million people watched the broadcast debut of Jurassic Park on NBC. Oh, wow. 68.12 million people. (laughs) Completely insane. It won three Academy Awards, Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Visual Effects. Should have been nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Picture and Best Director, but Spielberg was already nominated for Best Director. So well represented on the ballot. Yeah, it, he kind of cannibalized himself in that sense, but it's a shame that it didn't get a little more recognition because I think it's just such a memorable movie that really well represented the era, and I think... Yeah, a lot of people associate it with that time period, and it, it is. Just, you want it to be more represented in the end of year 
awards and stuff. It's so wild to just be like, I'm going to come out with two movies in the same year and it's going to be Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. <laughs> like how yeah. many directors are just like, all right, fuck off, please. So we're doing this episode around the 30th anniversary of the release of the novel, which came out in 1990, I think in November or something like that. So we're right around the 30th anniversary. I just reread the book in preparation for this episode. And it was a book I read after seeing Jurassic Park for the first time. I was very young. Yeah. So I barely remembered anything about the book. And there were a lot of differences between the novel and the film. Yeah, which I've always heard. I did not read it in the the lead up to this episode, but you're letting me borrow the book, so I think I'm going to read it in the come down of the episode. Yeah, all of the characters are different in one way or another, except for maybe Malcolm and Nedry and Muldoon. But I would say like the rest of the characters are pretty significantly different. Hammond is portrayed a lot differently, far less sympathetic. Grant is more generic. You would definitely still say he's like the hero of the book, but you don't have the interesting character traits that sort of define Sam Neill's performance where he's very like curmudgeonly. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> he's more of just like a regular guy. Yeah. He almost like lacks charisma, but not in a bad way. He has like this understated quality that kind of works for the movie. Yeah. I don't want to get into like all of the differences now. I will say that the movie is better than the book, which is oh, yeah. rare. And Creighton, came up with tons of great ideas over his career i think he he passed away i think 11 years ago maybe but i don't know that he was like necessarily that great of a writer in terms of like dialogue and you know stuff like that it was more just like he knew this enough about different types of sciences to make these books believable like sphere or the andromeda strain or westworld or you know different stuff that he created over time where he knew enough to make them interesting and believable, but he wasn't always great with like the writing part of it, yeah, the yeah, dialogue he, and he, the language and stuff. Certainly had a knack for these interesting worlds. Real quick, let's touch on the sequels. We have Jurassic World Dominion coming out June 10th, 2022, which still seems forever away. Really? They just finished filming it. I think they used like 40,000 COVID tests or something to get through the thing. They just Will, shut down and stuff. Uh, we still be doing this show when that comes out? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so, too. <laughs> if it's anything like Forbidden Kingdom, it will be a disaster. Yeah, uh, but they got the whole gang in it. That's true. We mostly disagreed on some of the sequels. Yeah. I f- was finding out during our, our pre- recording discussion but i think we agreed that forbidden kingdom is the worst by a million and it's not even close i mean i feel like probably the year it came out it was maybe the worst movie i saw that year it was embarrassing it was a new low and it was kind of unexpected because i didn't think that they would ever be that bad yeah because i I figured it almost felt like they were intentionally trying to make it bad i figured they had found sort of a lane not unlike fast and furious or even like the Marvel stuff where it's just like, we know how to do this. It's not going to yeah. be great, but it will be fine every time. And it's like, they couldn't even do that. It but was not fine. I didn't love Jurassic World when I saw it in the theaters, but I remember the reaction from people being mostly positive when Jurassic, Jurassic World, World got out. good reviews. Yeah, yeah. Forbidden Kingdom, it was uh, I can't more, imagine, but... I think it was more around like 
middling reviews. They weren't as bad as they should have been. Yeah. But they were definitely worse. They should let us take a stab at reviewing it, try to see if we can bring that score down a little bit. We'll circle back <laughs> and go through a little bit of a power rankings for the sequels yeah. at the end. But let's get into Jurassic Park itself. There's a lot of ground to cover. Certainly. A lot of different things happening in this movie, and it's a lot of fun. I forget a lot. My memory is not as sharp as it used to be, Uh, and I have trouble remembering the first times that I saw a lot of movies, or the specifics at least, even if I remember like where I saw it or who I was with or something. But with Jurassic Park, a movie that is... 27 years old now i can still remember seeing it in the theater tingling with excitement as it started just being transported into this world only knowing that it's like a big movie an exciting movie with dinosaurs not knowing the specifics of the story really just knowing dinosaurs are somehow brought back to life everything's perfect like the font that they use for the opening credits everything is perfect yeah (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this uh, opening scene, uh, so memorable. For some reason, I do feel like throughout my life, I've had times where I always mix up which scene is actually first, this or like the lawyer going to the yeah mine. I don't know. Everything is so great about this. You're trying to piece together the, the chaos that's kind of going on here, which I, I don't really think you ever kind of know like the full story here. They're just like transporting it, I yeah. guess. I love the ominous music. That starts. Oh, these guys in their fucking gear, too. The little sound effects and stuff. It's this exotic jungle location. You're just immediately immersed in this world. Yeah, I know. You're like, wow, (laughs) they've got such cool uniforms. (laughs) So it seems like they're transporting a velociraptor, and there is an accident when the raptor, I guess, like slams itself against the cage and knocks it from being lined upright or something. And a member of the crew ends up getting killed. And it's something that Spielberg, I think, picked up from his experience with Jaws and the lessons learned there, where he understood that sometimes it was more fun to tease this stuff out. So in the trailers and the marketing leading up to the release of the film, you never really got a great look at the dinosaurs. It was like brief flashes. This was in the age before the internet, so you couldn't like grab screenshots and different oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. This little opening scene, you just sort of see the raptor's eye and, like, part of its head for, like, a second. Yeah. And that's it. I love that now, too. It's, like, it's such a great thing about a TV spot or even a theatrical trailer. You saw it, and then it kind of went away. You didn't have these things where, like, people are freeze-framing things and analyzing it on YouTube. And, yeah, doing reaction videos <laughs> on YouTube. Like, right. we care what some fat slob thinks about the Dune trailer. Even though, like, his review of it somehow has three million views. Yeah, You're I like, don't know. what the fuck? I think some of that stuff is a scam. I agree. <laughs> I can't imagine that that many people watch that stuff. I love Muldoon in this. We don't know who Muldoon is yet. He just seems like the guy in charge. And he's, like, yelling, shoot her. Yeah. One of the most iconic moments because you're just like what the fuck oh i know it sets a tone for the movie where there will be a lot of fun a lot of excitement and getting sucked into that feeling of wonder but there will be a dark edge to it people are going to be killed in this movie oh yeah don't think that this is some g-rated fantasy time thing muldoon is such like a wild character too yeah i was like stunned 
to find out not recently this is not a recent discovery but i was so stunned when years after the fact i found out that bob peck the actor that plays him died in like the year 2000 oh wow yeah because i I thought the same dude was in sanctum and it was like a different guy yeah i feel like i remember you telling me that yeah i don't want to be too morbid but it's just like it's crazy that he's been gone 20 years but i do wonder that a lot when i watch jurassic park i'm like why isn't this guy in more stuff like why don't i remember him in like a bunch of other movies spielberg if you go through his movies, there are a lot of people that pop That's up true. in his movies that didn't go on to have like huge careers. Yeah. Well, again, he was even Sam Neill, who yeah, yeah. I've seen in tons of stuff, but like he wasn't like a an A lister. Well, even I mean, we talked about it on the Jaws episode and sort of the casting for that. He does have like such a knack of pulling people for roles that do feel like just genuine people from life, and like even Laura Dern playing Ellie Sadler. I mean, we love Laura Dern and think that she's like the queen of the universe because she is. But it's like, it, how how often are you pulling Laura Dern to play like the lead chick in this big of a movie? You, you just feel like she was still like pretty young, yeah, at the time and her but career I mean, was this like uh, how long after Wild at Heart was this? So she's doing like David Lynch movies, uh, like a couple years, yeah, yeah. But she was like a showbiz kid. Well, that's like true. her mother and father. Which always helps. Were big actors. Yeah. So people just like knew who she was. She was around the scene. And she's always worked consistently, but her career sort of stalled after this because of who knows what the specifics are, but she attributes it to playing Ellen's girlfriend in Ellen and oh, people wow. not being down with the main character of a sitcom coming out as gay. And it was like a huge thing. At the I time. do remember that being a big story. I didn't realize that Laura Dern played her. And after that, she had like a hard time getting cast and things. And it's only like in the last, she's had this like reemergence. Yeah. Like the last 10 to 15 years, all of a sudden she was back and is sort of like a big star again, but it definitely had like a weird run there for a while. I don't know. I think she's definitely a super babe, but <laughs> I don't know. It does still see, seem sort of odd to me that she would be chosen for this, except that Spielberg does seem to pick these people that feel more like normal people than feel like Hollywood. Don't have that like Hollywood flashiness to them, I guess. I don't remember which episode it was, if it was either The Goonies or A Nightmare on Elm Street, but we talked about how Langenkamp, Heather Langenkamp, read for The Goonies and didn't get it because she wasn't the right age and i think she was a little too old she was like older than the girl that plays andy in the goonies and spielberg was like as he did with tim right in this movie as well was like i, I could i'll keep you in mind i didn't really see this in my research for this specific episode but i remember saying that she was considered for Sattler in drastic park but she stayed loyal to Wes craven and did a new nightmare wow instead it is a big swing and a miss anytime you don't get to be in the highest grossing movie of all time. But as we just alluded to, it's not like the people in this movie became big stars. Right. It just didn't yeah. really work like that. So it was a missed opportunity there. She's the only other person I, I heard considered, though, for Ellie. We'll talk a, about some casting what-ifs, as okay. if this is rewatchable, <laughs> yeah. with um, Dr. Grant and Malcolm when we get there. But anyway, back, back to this movie. Sure. This little three-and-a-half-minute teaser scene sets off the chain of events that leads to the action of the film, which is something you don't really understand when you're a kid. There's actually a decent amount of 
plot points that they do throw into the script, like into dialogue that I, I don't know. You probably upon watching this 10 times, you're not even really connecting. You just kind of keep going with things. The whole yeah. thing, because, you know, the lawyer, it seems like this worker getting killed kind of like set this yeah, off. I think if we were going to take like a, an, a macro sort of overview, it's like Hammond has got some financial backers for this project that nobody's 100% sure exactly what he's doing. Because it's a surprise to the lawyer when they see these dinosaurs. So It's a little bit more ambiguous in the book as to who knows and who doesn't know yeah. what to expect. But once this accident happens, some of the financial backers are starting to get cold feet because there's talk of a $20 million lawsuit for the wrongful death of this worker. And it brings up a big question, like, is whatever Hammond's doing down on this island safe? And if it's not, are we throwing our money away on something that will never happen because it won't be allowed to exist? Right. It's just too dangerous or whatever. So that's sort of what sets everything into motion here. An industrialist named John Hammond has created a theme park slash biological preserve of cloned dinosaurs called Jurassic Park on Isla Nublar, which means Cloud Island, a fictional Costa Rican island. The park's investors, who will be represented by that lawyer, Donald Gennaro, start getting worried, and there's this talk of this lawsuit, which is chief among their concerns. But there are other concerns, too, including legality, the Costa Rican government, the U.S. government. Is what he's doing technically allowed? (laughs) And that actually is a big part of what Crichton's motivation is. This biological engineering was sort of this hot new science thing going on in the 80s that was leading into the 90s, and it was so unregulated. It was basically like, how fast can science work? Can it start doing things that we're going to think are a bad idea before we realize that they're a bad idea? Oh, yeah. It's just moving so quickly, and that's kind of what the whole point of the book ends up being. I love the premise of this movie. It does seem kind of crazy that this technology, the ability to do this exists, and this is like... Like, what comes of it? Yeah, I think the idea came to Crichton back in the early 80s where he sort of was coming up with a concept of a college student who creates a dinosaur or clones a dinosaur or something like that, or like a grad student or something. But he couldn't quite figure out, like, how that would happen. Right. And it took a long time to start piecing it together. Because like, it would cost a lot of money. You know, even well, just if the you science, just yeah. the science. Like okay, he didn't yeah. even know what the science would be. Like right. where would it come from, and all this stuff. And I think as we pushed towards learning more about DNA and understanding like what it is and where it comes from, because a lot of the science is sort of always evolving. And so yeah. the idea then where they would get the dinosaur blood from the the mosquitoes and all that stuff. This is just stuff that came to him over time, like right. learning more about the evolving science, and this is what it turned into. Because obviously, as you said, once you start breaking down, like, all right, well, how would you do this? And then with that comes the cost and everything. So it turns into this whole other thing. Right. So the investors demand that a group of experts visit the park and certify its safety or else they are going to consider pulling funding. So Gennaro invites a mathematician and chaos theorist named Ian Malcolm, who we'll meet shortly. (laughs) Which seems... Oddly specific for someone, for like the expert that you're picking to bring along. Yeah, I think a lot of this exposition is sort of just trimmed for the movie, for the better. Yeah, You yeah. sort of are like, oh, okay, I get, these yeah. are the people. Listen, anything that we, I, I know we nitpick things, we, we dive into things that don't need to be explained. 
I would say every choice that they made for this movie 100% works. I 100% buy the science that they introduced for it. I'm like, yeah, I'm in. I don't think that they really break too many of their own rules, and when they do, it still makes sense. Like, the fact that this whole life finds a way thing they introduced will definitely pick along the way, but I never am not in on their explanations for anything. Yeah, I think, like, Malcolm and Grant have relationships with engine which is the company that's sort of funding this that hammond is affiliated with but like they sort of just gloss over that and it is weird because you're like well what does malcolm have to do with this like you can kind of understand okay we're gonna bring in like a dinosaur expert yeah with grant but like what does malcolm have to do with this and i think Gennaro picks him because of things that aren't explained in the movie which is that malcolm had a relationship in the pre-production stages of this park i don't think that he really knew exactly what was going on but he had always been a voice of dissent like you can't do certain things this is crazy which he of course repeats over and over so Gennaro's like well who better than someone who is going to try to pick out the flaws and all this stuff and figure out what's wrong with it and it's good enough in the movie they don't give you anything like that but you definitely get the sense that there's an established relationship here like you don't get the sense that this is the first time him and hammond have met no and Hammond wants to bring in paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, who is currently working on a dig funded by Hammond up in Montana. And he's working on excavating a newly discovered skeleton of a velociraptor. So let's yeah. go through Grant a little bit. He's this curmudgeon character. He's very into his work. He's like kind of a rugged outdoorsman. He hates computers and is yeah. not fond of children. I said earlier, I mean, he's under, he's kind of an understated badass but there's almost like a dull quality to him as well. Yeah. One thing I like is how throughout the movie, the science and the different scientific theories that were popular at the time when it came to dinosaurs and prehistoric life are just sort of woven in seamlessly into the script where it never comes off as some sort of a science lesson. You're just sort of like, this is all part of the movie. Dinosaurs turn into birds. I was nine years old. Well, I didn't really know anything about evolution or any of this shit. So it's like, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, like, yeah. This is fun. This is part of the movie. Well, plus, I, I've always been like, yeah, it's more just like this dude in the movie thinks that. <laughs> like, this yeah. character thinks that. I love how there's like all those people around the dig. It's like, who are these people? Yeah, I know. It seems like there's it, almost like a tour or something. And then there's this, this fucking kid, kid just like wandering around. I, I know. Like, what town in Montana does this kid live in? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not like you can just wander to this site. Yeah, people just hanging around, Grant getting heckled by a child. There is something that's kind of great about this scene. I do feel like there's something mundane about what they're doing and the technology and, like, brushing sand off of bones. This setting up for when you go to the park and, like, what's going on there. It's just like, wow, how lame was your job? <laughs> When you're able to see these fucking dinosaurs and, like, everything that's going on. I I think it's, like, intentionally a little bit mundane. Yeah, it's more of just commenting on the slowness of this type of science and the old way of doing things. Harrison Ford and William Hurt both apparently turned down the role of Dr. Alan Grant, and it went to Sam Neill. I think Ford overpowers the movie immediately. It's fucking Indiana Jones and Han Solo. It's a totally different feel. It becomes about him exclusively, I automatically. Agree. Yeah, it, it does feel that way. William Hurt, I could see doing it, but I think it's more fun that it's someone that didn't have that much recognition in America. 
I agree. I there think are this some is the cool right Sam Neill movies that exist pre Jurassic Park, but they're not like huge movies. I love the movie Possession, which came out like in the early '80s, but I don't think that many people were familiar with it. I'm and gonna say no. He was in like Damien the Omen Four or some shit. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, he had been around for a while, but had never really been in big things. We meet Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern. She's a paleobotanist. They apparently have a romantic relationship. Yeah, I know. Well, this is something that I wanted to talk about because it's like they're together. It's discussed at times that they're together. But has there ever been a couple, an on-screen couple with less going on between them? Like they, they never touch, it seems like. At one point, he like puts his hand on her lower back or something. She does jump into his arms at that one point, but that's, that's more true. of just like a, a joyous, celebration. Yeah. yeah, like you're alive. Yeah, it well, is weird. There's I was almost like this ambiguity to their friggin' relationship. Well, in the book, they're not, and she actually very specifically tells one of the kids. I don't know if it's Lex or Tim or whatever that she's gonna be married to somebody else. She's like engaged to a lawyer from Chicago, and she's actually one of dr grant's students and so they cast sam neill who's like 20 years older than laura dern <laughs> yeah and they just say they're in a relationship but you never actually see it and i was like is there a scandalous history here was she his student or something it feels that way <laughs> and maybe that's why they sort of just like toned it down and they're not like kissing or anything in the movie because they're like i don't know it's kind of weird I-, I know but it comes off feeling weird all around like malcolm's having to ask if they're together because no one yeah. can tell. I think Goldblum and Dern like dated for a while after oh, wow. this movie. Good for Goldblum. He has a history of dating co-stars, I guess. Oh, wow. Well, back in the day. Good for him overall. What the hell do you think you're doing in here? Hey, we were saving that. But today, I guarantee it. <laughs> Who in God's name do you think you are? John Hammond. And I'm delighted to meet you finally in person, Dr. Grant. I can see that my uh, 50,000 a year has been well spent. Okay, who's the jerk? Uh, This is our paleobotanist, Dr. Sattler. Sattler. Uh Ellie, this is uh, Mr. Hammond. I'm sorry about the dramatic entrance, Dr. Sattler, but uh, we need a bit of a hurry. (laughs) Will you have a drink? Uh, We won't if you get warm. Come along, sit down, sit down. Uh, um, Uh, Just get a glass or two. That's No, 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 no. I can manage this. I know my way around the kitchen. Now... I'll get right to the point. Um, I like you, both of you. I can tell instantly about people. It's a gift. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica. I've leased it from the government and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve. Really spectacular, spared no expense. Make the one I've got down in Kenya look like a petting zoo. (laughs) And there's no doubt Our attractions will drive kids out of their minds. What are those? Small versions of adults, honey. And not just kids, everyone. We're going to open next year. That is if the lawyers don't kill me first. I I don't care for lawyers. Do you? Oh, Oh, we, uh... I don't don't really know any. Well, I do, I'm afraid. There's a particular pebble in my shoe represents my investors. Says that they insist on outside opinions. What kind of opinions? Well, you're kind not to put too fine a point on it. I mean, let's face it, in your particular field, you're the top minds. And if I could just persuade you to sign off on the park, you know, get your endorsement, maybe even pen a 
a wee testimonial I could get back on schedule. Uh, schedule. <laughs> Why would they care what we think? What kind of park is this? It's right up your alley. I tell you what, why don't you come down, just the pair of you, for the weekend? I'd love to have an opinion of a paleobotanist as well. <laughs> I've got a jet standing by a choco. Oh, look, I'm sorry, this is that's impossible. Yeah, this is a... Yeah. We just dug up a new skeleton. I, well, I could compensate you by fully funding your dig. And this is a very unusual a time. time. For a further three years. Where's the plane? Yeah. Hey. Okay. <laughs> so Hammond shows up in person to invite Grant and Sattler to his island. He gets them to agree to come by offering to fund their dig for another three years. So let's talk a little bit about Hammond. Because the difference between novel Hammond and movie Hammond is pretty distinct. And... I get what Spielberg's motivation was, and I kind of think that Spielberg probably related to Hammond. Oh, yeah. And his ambitions of, like, creating an attraction to entertain and stuff. But Crichton originally created Hammond to be, quote, a dark Walt Disney, unquote. Sort of, I would say, hiding behind all of the spectacle and performance while his true motivations were greed, profit, and acclaim. More capitalistic. Yeah, and not just money, but also just achievement like look what i did he was much more villainous in the novel Crichton saw it as an exploration of biogenetics for the sake of profit i think it makes the movie so much i I mean i'll say better that like hammond is this it it feels more pure and like that he just really wants to make this thing and have people like it hammond is modified for the movie turning him into a flawed idealist who generously wants to share his creations with the world and seems unconcerned with accumulating more wealth. And they sort of pass those negative traits onto Gennaro. Gennaro gets hit with a lot of negative traits from other characters in the book. Uh, Yeah, Gennaro is despicable in the movie. (laughs) There is not a lot of redeeming qualities. And he's not in the book at all. It's sort of just he took on a character that doesn't exist, his cowardice. And he took on Hammond's bad traits, and they sort of just all put that on Gennaro. Spielberg cast his friend, Richard Attenborough, a fellow director who once bested Spielberg a decade earlier at the Oscars when Attenborough's film Gandhi won over E.T. Oh, yeah. And on a personal note, Attenborough was Chelsea Football Club's director from 1969 to 1982, and from 93 to 08 held the honorary position of life vice president before he was then honored with the position of life president. I don't know what those things mean, but I guess it's a big place in yeah. Chelsea's history. Good titles to have. He is perfect for this role. It's hard to imagine anybody else playing. Yeah, this. and he played Santa Claus famously, so it's you know, it's hard to like make him seem evil. Right. And so it, it sort of just naturally would make sense to alter that character. One of his mantras, though, is spare no expense. Spare oh, no yeah, expense. Yeah, yeah. He repeats it throughout the film, even when things start going awry. And we're going to circle back to that later. Because I think it's something, again, that you probably aren't picking up on as like a 10-year-old seeing Absolutely. this movie. But the whole concept is yeah, yeah. this spare no expense bullshit is just a line. Now, it's this not is, true at all. Right. I, now it's 
every fan theory on Reddit is about the what they spent on information technology and security <laughs> and the, the lack thereof. Yeah, exactly, yeah. There is a lot to talk about there, and I'm kind of into digging into it a little bit. I do wonder, like, because I, I don't really know corporate America in, in the early 90s, but it seems like this may have been a little bit ahead of its time in terms of business continuity plans, disaster recovery exercises, like yeah. how much you really need to put into your systems, information, security to, like, protect all this stuff and back it all up. It, it feels like it may have been a little bit ahead of all of that stuff being like standard practice. The next scene takes place in San Jose, Costa Rica. It's a clandestine meeting between Dennis Nedry, who's played by Wayne Knight, and a man named Dodgson. Oh, yeah. Nedry is Jurassic Park's lead and possibly seemingly only computer programmer. <laughs> yeah. Dodgson works for Hammond's biggest corporate rival, Nedry is accepting half of a bribe at this meeting. The other half will be paid upon delivery Which you do of wonder the fertilized dinosaur embryos. What this rival company was even doing, because it's like, if you couldn't make this, <laughs> where were you getting with it? Yeah, is there's it just... not a ton of time dedicated in the book, but it's basically just like this race of bioengineering, yeah. and they haven't quite made the discovery of how to do this, but NGen has. Right. Dodson! You shouldn't use my name. Dodson! Dodson! We've got Dodson here! See, nobody cares. Nice hat. You're trying to look like a secret agent. 750. On delivery, 50,000 more for each viable embryo. That's 1.5 million if you get all 15 species off the island. Oh, I'll get them all. Remember, viable embryos. They're no use to us if they don't survive. Oh, how am I supposed to transport them? The bottom screws open. It's great. Oh, you guys. It's cool to compartmentalize inside. You guys, oh, that's great. Customs can even check it if they want to. Let me see. Go on. There's enough coolant inside for 36 hours. No menthol? The, em the embryos have to be back here in San Jose by then. And that's up to your guy on the boat. 7 o'clock tomorrow night on the East Dock. Make sure he gets it right. How are you planning to beat security? Oh, I've got an 18-minute window. 18 minutes and your company catches up on 10 years of research. Gracias, señor. Don't get cheap on me, Dodson. That was Hammond's mistake. I think it's enough. I think it's fine to just show us Dodson once. He's I just agree. this random guy. We get it. Almost, he kind of seems schlubby. <laughs> like, even so much that Nedry's, like, goofing on him for, like, wearing his hat. and Yeah, you know, like, what are you, what a secret it? agent? Right. <laughs> Dodson. We got Dodson here. Yeah. <laughs> See, nobody cares. Spielberg chose to cast Wayne Knight after seeing his performance in Basic Instinct, saying, quote, I waited for the credits to roll and wrote his name down. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the first references to Hammond being cheap. Now, the movie goes out of its way to portray Nedry so terribly that we just end up believing Hammond's side of oh, it. Oh, right. Which, I mean, I hate to keep harping on. It's a little different from the book. But this is technically an important thing that goes awry because of Hammond unwilling to open the wallet a little further. Somebody's willing to turn on him. I love the helicopter ride to the island. It's just, I mean... 
Yeah, like know. that whole shot where it's like the split between the mountains and the helicopters like coming yeah. in and even the helipad looks so cool. <laughs> Before we move on, one thing about the Nedry scene, I always fucking thought the Barbasol can was like so fucking cool <laughs> that like they pull oh, yeah, it out yeah. to have that thing that they're going to like steal the little specimens in. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I wanted to bring that up whenever he, he actually steals them. But yeah, that thing is like awesome. And he just like takes the shaving cream and puts it on the piece of pie. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Even just to have this little prop be like so fucking cool. Something that you couldn't even like imagine. Yeah. On the helicopter are Grant, Sattler, Gennaro, Hammond, and Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. The only other person I saw mentioned for this part was Jim Carrey, who was apparently real close. Oh, wow. That's sort of an America's sliding doors moment. Like, what <laughs> yeah. if Carrey is in Jurassic Park? Everything in the 90s is completely different. Holy shit, yeah. I don't know how Carrey was auditioning. I mean, I would hope it wasn't like Ace Ventura or <laughs> The Mask, although that was like this era. Yeah, yeah. But can't really imagine this part or this movie without Goldblum. I agree. Just this his almost, whole like way of um um It's like the defining Goldblum role. He's been in a shitload of movies, has had a very successful career, but I just feel like this role defines Jeff Goldblum. It's such an odd manic performance. He's constantly hitting on Ellie. Constantly going <laughs> off on these like speeches and tangents, but he's sort of but like mumbling them under his breath. He's the voice of Crichton. You know, I think right, a lot right. of writers would put themselves in the hero's shoes. And the hero of the book and the movie is definitely Grant. Sure. But I think Malcolm is used as a way to, like, push back against the potentially hazardous evolution of bioengineering. He's the one expressing the concerns that maybe Crichton was thinking about. And so yep. he... It's a weird thing where, like, the writer or the original source material is splitting into, like, two people being like, okay, here's our hero, but this guy is the one that's going to comment on everything. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just a soaring score. The first view of the island, it's just fucking glorious. And then when they're going to land, Grant's seatbelt. Oh, I know. This was like, this is what would happen to me. I have two ends of the seatbelt, and neither of them are the one that buckles in. Yeah, this is just sort of like a a metaphor for everything that's going on in the park for a lot of different reasons. First of all, the two sides of the seatbelt that he has are like considered the female ends of a seatbelt. Then when he ties them around himself, it's like life finds a way. But it's also already noticeable flaws because this is like an official Jurassic Park helicopter and it's got little details wrong with it. And it's indicating that things may have been rushed a bit. All of them go on this little Jeep ride out into the park. You have to keep in mind here that Grant and Sattler, for sure, have no idea what's going on. Oh, right. I think Malcolm has a sense of it, but has no idea what Hammond has actually accomplished. Sure. I think Gennaro is the same way, where he knows the vague idea, but again, has not seen it and doesn't really know for sure exactly what Hammond has actually done. Our two main characters yeah. have no clue what's going on. How do you keep a secret like this under wraps? Well, you wouldn't be able to now, for sure. Yeah. yeah Those that- park workers with their cell phones like, not, aren't sneaking a, a selfie with the bronchiosaurus in the background? I think it's like probably a little bit further explored in The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3, but in those instances, it seems like there were people that had heard rumors and the story was out there like a little yeah. bit more. 
especially like once the incident itself starts filtering out there a little bit. But I don't know. I think that's probably why they were like, all right, it's down in Costa Rica on this made up secluded island. No one can really go there. It, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think in like 93, you could kind of buy it. I get I guess. it. Yeah. It's just, even the people, I don't care what contracts you're signing. This would be such a crazy feat. <laughs> How are you not out there like telling people about this? So the group gets to see the Brachiosaurus for the first time. Yeah. And, and it's such an amazing build, this ride out. Ellie's distracted. I was reading about how, like, in the trailer, you see the shot where she, like, pulls this extinct plant that she's, like, holding. Yeah. But it's not in the theatrical cut of the movie. But, you know, she's examining it and is just, like, so distracted by it being, like, this is insane. This, like, this shouldn't be This here. leaf. What? <laughs> and this then, leaf. Yeah, this leaf is <laughs> Look crazy. at this fucking leaf. <laughs> <laughs> and Grant is just has to be like, holy shit, there's a bronchiosaurus over here. And, I mean, again, this is like the wonder, the amazement, like the camera pans over. This is a CGI moment, but I, it still looks pretty good. It doesn't look good, but <laughs> it looks so much better than the other okay, ones. Okay, fair the other enough. Movies. Yeah, it's, right. Believe I agree it. that it doesn't. But look good. seeing it in '93, oh, you had yeah. never seen anything like this. Absolutely, it, and like it wasn't even when I was a kid, the CGI wasn't even noticeable to me, like at all. Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Well, that was that's part of it. You had never seen anything right. like this, so the concept of them making this stuff with computers was so foreign that you just sort of believed it. I think watching it now, you can kind of see it's not as good as you would think based on your memory, but it's still so much better than the other ones. It is crazy that somehow they don't notice the dinosaurs before they drive up, like, right next to them. Yeah, I know. And then later when they turn their head just there's the other million. direction, there's so many of them. Right. And Sattler's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this leaf, though. <laughs> <laughs> just, like, enough with the leaf. Yeah, really. We don't care. I know. You would see, like, a bronchiosaurus neck from, like, 100 yards out. More than that. Probably, like, sure. a mile yeah, away right, you would from see From the it. helipad. I love when Grant asks how fast they go. Hammond just interjects with the T-Rex. He's like, well, we clocked the T-Rex at 30 miles an hour. Just to brag, I guess, that right. they have one. It's like, well, I was asking about this. Yeah, I know. Like, what does that have to do with this? With the bronchiosauruses, they're just, like, walking out in these fields, and there's, like, a bunch of other animals out there. As the movie goes on, you know, we see these cages for certain animals. But it, I don't know. These bronchiosaurus just have free range. I mean, it seems like they could do a lot of damage, even though they're, like, veggie eaters. Yeah, I think throughout all of the movies, they definitely treat the non-meat-eater dinosaurs as if they're not dangerous at all, which seems crazy. Right. Because how could you predict their behavior? Even if it's not like they're uh, trying to kill someone, what if the thing just walks one step over? It's so big that one step over might kill you, or it swings its tail around. or so, You know, you don't know what it's going to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they're just, like, right up next to it a lot. As I mentioned, Gennaro takes on Hammond's bad traits from the book, and he's just immediately like, we're going to make so much money. Yeah, which, I mean, it's a fair thought here. I love whenever Grant's like, how did you do this? And then, like, Hammond is just, like, kneeling by him. He's like, I'll show you. Yes, I, it's <laughs> magical. I'll show you. <laughs> How'd you do this? I'll show you. Now, is this island sustainable? It seems like... One Brachiosaurus would have to eat so much. <laughs> so many leaves. It's just like, how is there enough to feed all these animals? I know they're going to be Ellie's like, just like the horror at these leaves that are going to get eaten. 
they're gonna be bringing in food for the meat eaters we see the t-rex eat like a goat oh i know i did think about this too yeah just like like, so many cows to be killed well did you see how much shit just the fucking triceratops had it's like Oh, I know. This it it feels just, like they're going to run out of food. Destroying the, the resources. The plants yeah. aren't going to grow fast enough. It's just an island. But anyway. So some quick exposition. And I love how they just condense this all together. It's very easy to understand and it's very fast. At the park's visitor's center, the group goes on an informational tour ride that explains that the cloning was accomplished by extracting dinosaur DNA from mosquitoes preserved in amber. DNA from frogs was then used to fill in the gaps in the genome of the dinosaurs, to prevent unauthorized breeding in the park, all of the dinosaurs are engineered to be female. How do you know they're all female? Does somebody yeah. go out in the park and pull up the dinosaur's skirts? We control their chromosomes. It's really not that difficult. Yeah. All vertebrate embryos are inherently female anyway. They just require an extra hormone given at the right developmental stage to make them male. We simply deny them that. Deny them that? John, the kind of control you're attempting is... Uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. There it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life, uh, finds a way. Now... Even every detail, though, here, like the little cartoon DNA thing, talking yeah. with him, you feel like this is something like out of Disney World. Yes. This is the big thing, though, the pushback that they're going to get from Malcolm specifically and even Sattler and Grant, which is like Hammett is essentially trying to control nature, which I think is what Crichton's point is about bioengineering. It's like, should you mess with something like this because you don't know what's going to happen? Yeah, and aside from any moral concerns there, it does seem, like, dangerous. Yeah, of course, a lot of it is morality-based concerns, but they do it in a fun way in this movie, which is, like, let's create dinosaurs for an amusement park, but the idea that you understand something that existed so long ago. That's the thing. So much knowledge, even in this movie is based off of theory because how the fuck are you going to you don't we don't even really oh, yeah, know what right. color dinosaurs they could yeah. all be neon color like we don't know <laughs> they were like glowing <laughs> yeah, yeah there's right. so many things that is just like guesswork that the idea that you could bring them back to life and somehow be able to control them and understand what's happening with them it's just impossible i mean when you take a step back the fact that like dinosaurs existed is like, mind blowing <laughs> you know it's like insane. well the fact that they existed and how long they existed i think I meant to look this up maybe before we did this podcast recording, but I'm just going to pull stuff out of my ass right now. I mean, I feel like they were on the earth for millions of years. Yeah. And then they were gone for 65 million. It's like human beings have only been around for like a few thousand years. Yeah, I know. It's just crazy. Malcolm and the others do not think what is being attempted is possible, and his contention is life will find a way. So even though we have... Dr. Wu, I think is his name, right? Oh, yeah. B.D. Wong. Yeah. Who's the only cast member from this movie to, to appear in Jurassic World. Which I, I feel like he's great in this, in, in a small appearance. Like, he's just so viable in that role. But I, I just feel like he's awful in these later appearances. He's a little bit more in the book, and I think he gets eaten in the book. That's one of the, the book's strengths is with these kind of peripheral characters because you kind of see like his thought process and motivation a little bit more. Where 
he's very adamant that there can't be breeding, but once right. it's proven to him, which does happen in the book, that there is breeding, he's almost kind of like happy because it proves that the dinosaurs he made are a hundred percent legitimate and working dinosaurs. Oh, like, yeah. in other words, if you created like some weird clone thing, you might not be able to actually make it where it could actually breed. This was something I was trying to figure out about the science. <laughs> You figured out how to clone dinosaurs, essentially, but I, that's creating an egg for a dinosaur to be hatched out of? They don't go into it in the movie at all. One of the things that, like, NGen did under the radar was, like, buy this, I think it's, like, a plastics company that had figured out a way to make synthetic eggs for breeding chickens and stuff. Okay. And so they buy this company sort of secretly, and no one really knows why Another or what bird they're doing with it. Yeah, but they're able to, like, recreate eggs Okay. For, for them to, like, grow in, I guess. Fair enough. Grant is alarmed that the baby they're watching hatching from an egg is a raptor. Does seem nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're going to talk about I love, the raptors and why would you even do this. Uh, the T-Rex, while vicious, it doesn't really cause the same concern, it seems like. Even when people hear about it, they're kind of like, Wow, that's amazing. You have a T-Rex. But when it comes to raptors, no one seems like that's a particularly great idea. Although Grant, I will say, I, you know, I think he's going from six to midnight a little bit. He's, he's like, I got to see this raptor cage. Even though we don't really get a good look at one of the adult raptors until much later in the film. Much, much later. Oh, yeah. Jurassic Park serves as a star-making platform for velociraptors. Before this movie, raptors were not a species I remember being like talked about all the time. I would agree. You would have yeah. your like Tyrannosaurus Rex, Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Stegosaurus, even. and like Brontosaurus Bronchi- or, or Brachiosaurus. Yeah, bron- like, yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't hear people talking about raptors, but like after this movie, raptors were like, oh yeah, they moved way up <laughs> the power rankings of dinosaurs. Yeah, we're like, we need an NBA team. To the, yeah, to the point yeah. where they created Toronto Raptors, which seems like after the Anaheim Ducks is like the second movie themed name in sports. Right. Because before Jurassic Park, you weren't going to name it Raptors, at least not after the dinosaur where the dinosaur was like part of their logo. If you were going to use the word Raptor, it would be the Planes? English word yeah. bird of prey. Okay. Technically like a hawk or an eagle oh, is okay. like a yeah, Raptor, yeah, yeah. but not the dinosaur, but Spielberg and, and Crichton and Kep and everybody involved in sort of constructing this story they do this incredible job of selling the danger where they took a species that was probably unknown to a a significant part of the audience and start building it up so by the time we get there you buy it entirely like holy fuck the raptors are out meanwhile before the movie started you even know what a raptor was (laughs) yeah i know well even like the whole backstory that muldoon introduces about the ones that they have and how like the one became the alpha and killed some of the other ones yeah, which was always confusing to me that there's actually only three raptors in this movie. Yeah, and they I know. do they do mention that, but like I always feel like there's more than three. Yeah, I would agree. But he does say like, "Oh, she killed all but the other two. <laughs> but he's also like, "They should all be destroyed." Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, I agree with him. So they go to this raptor enclosure, and this is what I was saying. It's like, look at this enclosure and all the precautions they have to take, and these things are so dangerous. What is even the point? And I you did, can't even see them. I didn't even right. I know. I, I didn't even notice it. I don't think until this viewing. But through most of it, Grant is kind of being like, "This is a bad idea. This is a bad idea." I do feel like he's so perked up <laughs> about the Raptors, though. Well, like, yeah, he's the one. 
you know, wasn't on the planned tour to go to this enclosure. He's like, we got to go see him right now. Yeah, yeah. This is where we meet Muldoon, played by Bob Peck. He's a game warden who had worked for Hammond at, like, his other biological preserve in Kenya, which is, like, not extinct animals, <laughs> like a regular yeah. biological preserve. And they start pushing the raptor intelligence, the speed, the hunting prowess. And so we get, like, this idea of how potentially dangerous they could be. But I am just like, what? right, you, you point out you can't even see these things in the cage. Now, for the movie, this scene is quite terrifying still. But you are like, well, what are you going to do with these things? And he talks about them being out in the open and stuff. Like, do they let them go run? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like they could really do anything with them. Yeah, yeah. And the noises they make are, like, insane. Yeah. <laughs> After this basic introduction, Hammond is surprised and annoyed that Malcolm, Grant, and Sattler question the ethics of cloning, wonder of the inherent dangers of the park, and warn about the implications of genetic engineering because Hammond is basically blinded by the light of discovery. He talks about the light of discovery and I was I immediately thought of the song blinded by the light. Cause that is kind of what he is. He's Agreed, blinded yeah. by this ambition and he thinks that discovery is the ultimate thing. And a lot of scientists feel that way. But Malcolm of course is like, well, what's so great about discovery? It's sort of this penetrative violent act and he talks about the rape of the natural world and everything. And he has this much more progressive thought process of like, what you mean by discovery is sort of like self-acclaim. You're talking about discovery in the sense that like you want credit for doing something that hadn't been done before, right. regardless of how dangerous or wrong it might be. <laughs> None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. And then other rides will come online six or 12 months after that. Absolutely spectacular design. Spared no expense. And we can charge anything we want, 2000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And then there's the merchandise. Donald, Donald. This park was not built to cater only for the super rich. Everyone in the world has the right to enjoy these animals. Sure, they will. I mean, what, we'll have a, a coupon day or something? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. Well, thank you, Dr. Malcolm, but I think things are a little bit different than you and I had feared. Yeah, yeah I know. They're a lot worse. Now, wait a second. Now, we haven't even seen the part where you have Donald, let him talk. There's no reason. No, no, I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here. Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. Condors. Condors are on the verge of extinction. If oh, I was to no. No, if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this is some species that was obliterated by deforestation. 
or, or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery and, and not act? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. Well, the question is, how can you know anything about an extinct ecosystem? And therefore, how could you ever assume that you can control it? You have plants in this building that are poisonous. You pick them because they look good. But these are aggressive living things that have no idea what century they're in, and they'll defend themselves violently if necessary. Dr. Grant, if there's one person here who could appreciate what I'm trying to do... The world has just changed so radically, and we're all running to catch up. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe it. You're meant to come down here and defend me against these characters, and the only one I've got on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Thank you. So they sort of dazzle you with words in the movie but like underneath it Hammond is still kind of like a questionable character they can't yeah I mean that's they can't the get thing. rid of that entirely he, yeah that's true and he can't listen to any reason he does just want to keep plowing forward no matter what oh yeah for sure he's still talking about the park as if it's going to happen up until almost the very end of that's the right. movie yeah we've come into it with already one of his workers has been killed he's like marky mark in fear where that's right at yeah. the end he's still acting like they're going to be together he's it's like, like this park is not happening <laughs> he carved jurassic park into his chest forever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god Gennaro, the lawyer, is now the only one who seems to be on Hammond's side, but he is blinded by greed. Yeah. And not by the light of discovery or ambition. Which it is actually hilarious that the only one that's on his side is the one that he, like, hates. Yeah, they make it a point to be like, well, Gennaro's like, we could charge 1000 a day, 10000 a day. And Hammond's like, no. He's like, I want all of the kids of the world to see it. So he's like... Oh, I'll have a coupon day. <laughs> they're going out of their way to make you feel sympathetic towards... Hammond because he's not interested in just like gouging people to yeah. see these things. I want everyone's lives to be in danger, not just the rich. <laughs> Speaking of endangering lives, Lex and Tim, Hammond's grandchildren, arrive just in time to join the group for their tour of the park. I think we talked about it on the ET episode with Spielberg's history with divorce, but also yeah, they a, have to throw that in here. Yeah, a factor here. Which is funny because the kids, the in brothers Lost in World. Jurassic World. Yeah, or yeah, Jurassic World. Well, the Lost World, yeah, Malcolm is not with that girl's mother. Yeah, right. I don't know if he's supposed to be her biological father or not. Unclear. Kinda hard yeah. to tell what's going on there. <laughs> the tour group gets into these electric SUVs on a track. Which look fucking cool, like everything else. Yeah, custom paint jobs. Grant is trying to avoid these kids at all costs. And I would say for the most part, certainly not everything, but for the most part, the technology in these Jeeps or whatever seems cool even now. It doesn't seem that... Like some of the stuff where it's like, 
oh cool a digital cd rom <laughs> like okay that seems like it sucks but and it, like <laughs> dated but like some of the shit in this thing i'm just like wow you wouldn't even envision us having this technology now hammond will oversee the tour from the control room it does seem weird that he wouldn't go along i mean i know for the movie it it works but it feels like he'd want to be around the reactions that's true that is a good point Lex and Tim are very different in the book as well. Tim is older in the book. Lex is older in the movie. They give Lex a little bit more personality in the movie and let her be the one interested in computers because in the book, Tim is interested in both computers and dinosaurs. And it, it makes Lex very annoying in the book. She's like oh. a little kid. She's supposed to be like very young, and she has no personality other than to be annoying. Her computer skill in the movie seems insane. What she does at the end doesn't seem possible. It's a Unix system. Yeah, I, I know, know this. Right. She actually gets like a couple of cool hero moments later in the movie. We meet Ray Arnold, played by Samuel Jackson, That's famous right. for saying, hold on to your butts. Yeah, which he actually <laughs> says twice. Yes. I, I don't it's think like a catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> hold on to your butts. Sort of a weird thing to think about that he's in Jurassic Park a year before Pulp Fiction and the differences yeah. between Ray Arnold and Jules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like this complete just like computer geek, but like he's not even good at it in Jurassic Park. And then in fucking Pulp Fiction, he's like the biggest badass of all time. I do love that he's like smoking nonstop. Yeah, I do like that. It's too. Like these motherfucking dinosaurs yeah. in this motherfucking park. <laughs> I love this beginning of this tour because I just remember watching this movie for the first time as a kid and being so excited when they come up to the Dilophosaurus oh, pen thinking like, can I see it? I'm squinting into oh, the trees well, as if I'm in the movie. I even love the fucking Jurassic Park big wooden doors that have to oh, open yeah. up with a sign over it. But real quick on Samuel Jackson too, it's like, that's another thing where it's just like, here's a guy that takes a role that's, you know, there's not much to it. I mean, he doesn't have that many lines, but just makes it like such a dynamic character. So they pass the Dilophosaurus enclosure without seeing anything. As I said, I mean, I'm staring into the trees like I'm in the movie. Oh, I'm I know. Like, like you're like, squinting. Is yeah. there something there somewhere? Even though it's like, why would there be something that you can't see? What's the point of spending money on that? Right. They don't see anything. They go to and the T-Rex. You okay. do start to feel like, okay, how well thought out was this if we can't see anything? Well, yeah, because then they go to the T-Rex pen and they don't see the T-Rex. In terms of a movie, this is all building anticipation very slowly because now you're starting to get antsy thinking like, all right, well, we got to see this T-Rex because we've seen a few of the dinosaurs, but we didn't get to get our eyes on the raptors and we haven't seen the T-Rex yet. So we're like, okay, so obviously something crazy is going to happen. I wanted to point out like, okay, so in one car we have Malcolm alan and ellie and then the other car we have the two kids with Gennaro. yeah which seems strange i love when ellie's asking malcolm about chaos theory and all this stuff and he's like launching into his insane things <laughs> about why he's, he's like so touching important. her hair oh i know <laughs> he just like reaches out and touches her I, hair. I will say though grant doesn't care at all he's not like making a scene about it yeah he, he's letting her deal with it it's yeah. not he's not gonna make like a big deal about it so finally, they come across a sick triceratops. So this is like the first dinosaur they see on the tour. Grant just opens the door and hops out of the car, which causes everyone else to as well. And then as they're overseeing it in the control room, Muldoon is like, 
I've said it a million times. We need to get locking mechanisms on the door. And I, my first thought was, the doors don't lock. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding right. me? Is this like a lawsuit waiting to happen? It's like who, they're going to wander up and touch the electric fences. They're going to get their arms bit off. Like, yeah, what know. the fuck are you? They don't have do- locks on these doors. For a guy like Muldoon, who doesn't seem very positive about anything going on in the park, it's just like, why are you working here? <laughs> I mean, he seems like. Well, think about it. Yeah. You're in whatever field. I think in the book, Arnold is supposed to be a guy who oversaw theme parks for like Disney and for okay. everything else. Yeah. And he's like these massive parks More all like, over like the world. Like an operations director or something. Yeah. And then you have. Muldoon, who's hunted all of these animals, he's this game and wildlife expert. They're all presented with this opportunity, a once in a lifetime, never been That's done true. before thing. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it makes sense. They're all like intrigued by it. And I'm sure the money, the offers are are high. So the group walks up to this sick Triceratops. Sattler ends up wanting to stay and help. And I think the Triceratops looks pretty awesome. Yeah, they didn't have to do a lot with it. It's because it's not moving. A real animatronic. It's yeah. just kind of laying there. They never solve the mystery illness in the movie. Not that anyone really cares. It's a little bit more fleshed out in the book. Sattler ends up staying. The rest of the tour leaves. This is another one where I was reading that there may have been a deleted scene, or at least it was in the script that they talk through what the solution is. And Ellie and Grant like high five, <laughs> which seems like insane. Oof. Yeah. Glad that didn't make it. Okay. So now two things happen simultaneously which send everything into a spiral so first the tour is cut short by an approaching tropical storm yeah which sees most of the park employees leave for the mainland on a boat i also like that at this part ellie is just like i'm gonna stay with the trike yeah like just she's just like calling shots like that at this point yeah everyone's like it's just like of course you're an expert in leaves Also, at the same time, Nedry deactivates the park security system to gain access to the embryo storage room. And you know what? Wayne Knight, we all know him for uh, Newman, but his acting, I think, is so fucking great at this part when he's talking about going to the vending machine. Yeah. We're <laughs> just like kind of rambling on and on and on. And they're all looking at him like, what the fuck is he talking well, about? Well, and I kind of see the basic instinct thing here because, you know, he doesn't have a huge role in basic instinct, but he's in that, like, interrogation scene or yeah. whatever. And when she's, like, firing back at Nick, Michael Douglas, he's, like, sweating from his brow. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's just, like, so perfect, like, just his facial reaction to Well, things. stealing these dinosaur embryos is, like, the equivalent of seeing Sharon Stone's pussy. I would agree. So he's just, you know, stammering, like, doesn't know what to do. It's two things that are only going to happen once in your life. <laughs> Unless you get the Blu-ray. Yeah. Nedry stores the embryos inside a container disguised as a shaving cream can. Nedry's sabotage extends outward, though, cutting power to the tour vehicles. Yeah. And the tour vehicles end up stranded outside the Tyrannosaur paddock in a torrential downpour. And eventually the park's electric fences are deactivated, too. So while they're sitting there, Nedry begins his ill-fated quest to deliver the stolen embryos to the docks before the boat departs. Which, a lot has to happen like pretty quickly here that you don't see. Like, how much of this staff has to get to that boat so quickly? Like, Yeah, yeah. And we're definitely going to circle back to what that's all about because it's kind of confusing and also you learn a little bit more by reading the book that you may not figure out or pick up on just by watching the movie because one of those examples would be 
it's never clear to me in the movie whether or not Nedry was planning on coming back after taking the embryos to the dock. In the book, his plan is to drive them to the dock and come back and, and turn everything bring back everything on. back up. Okay, but yeah. they never really make that clear. And I always I, I kind agree. of assumed yeah. that he was leaving. Me too. Uh, yeah, I guess I always took it that meeting the guy at the dock like they were getting on the boat and going. Yeah, but I don't. But what you're saying makes sense, and maybe actually probably makes more sense. It's just not the way I. Ever... That's why he tells them. Yeah. That they're gonna go down before he leaves. Right. I think is the answer because if he wasn't coming back, he probably why would he even tell them? Yeah. What, what difference? I mean, would he make? could step away for ten minutes and people wouldn't think anything, and by the time they do, it's too late. Nedry ends up becoming lost in the rain and crashes his jeep, getting it stuck. We'll come back to that in a bit. The storm is now overpowering the park, and this works as a perfect metaphor for the movie's theme of trying and failing to control nature. Oh, yeah. Because it doesn't seem like they really had much of a contingency plan for something like this happening, no. which is crazy. Because they're in, like, a tropical storm area? Yeah. And, this- yeah, and that's the thing. Like, losing power seems like a possibility outside of what Nedry does. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It doesn't seem like they were planned for any potential hiccups that could happen. The second half of the movie is really just a series of unbelievable, awesome action sequences and set pieces. You sort of almost define the movie by, okay, this part, and then this part, and then this part. It's one after the other. What's kind of wild here is, and I, you know, it works perfectly for like the theme of the movie, but how quickly things start moving after this you know what i mean it is just like boom 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 like things just keep happening one right after the other like you've gone from these people in this control room seeing this tour happening and being worried about people just like getting out of the cars to okay now we're in complete disaster mode and we're never going to come out of it basically in the stranded vehicles the t-rex's approach is signaled by the vibrating rings in cups of water oh yeah this idea came to Spielberg while listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire in his car. <laughs> That's hilarious. Which, that visual alone is also, unbelievable. Also would be uh, replicated perfectly in Wayne's World 2. <laughs> he noticed how the bass lines caused these vibrations. So in the movie, to achieve the effect, they literally ran guitar strings under the dashboard and had someone pluck them to get the rings to ripple in the water like that. Yeah, I mean, this is a great effect. It's awesome. Unfortunately, it's inconsistent throughout the movie. Yeah, yeah. There are times where the T-Rex approach is a surprise, and so you don't hear anything. And there are dinosaurs like the Brachiosaurus at the beginning that are bigger and way more heavier than T-Rex and yet don't seem to have the same effect. But whatever. It's cool. Yeah, it is. It's such an awesome, memorable visual that you can sort of forgive the inconsistencies of sure it thing. yep <laughs> because sometimes it needs to be a surprise <laughs> finally basically halfway through the movie is the first appearance of the t-rex and it looks fucking awesome yeah it looks so cool eating the goat and the part of the goat falling on the one suv just disgusting <laughs> Gennaro immediately it's actually funny like rewatching how fast he does this just yeah, immediately yeah. abandons the kids uh, I, and i know it's it's cowardice i, I can't blame him can you what would you do in this situation i don't know how can you protect these kids oh i'd be like kids come with me 
You know what I mean? He runs to a nearby restroom outbuilding, which I'm like, why would you stop there? Just keep going. Oh, I know. <laughs> I would just keep trying to run back to just keep following the track. Yeah, you have to show your face in front of him and being like, I left your grandkids there. <laughs> the T-Rex somehow knows that the fence is out and immediately starts escaping. And the thing that I'm blown away by during this entire long T-Rex attack sequence is how fucking good the T-Rex looks. I know. Both the animatronic and the CGI all sort of melded together here. Right. It looks so good, partially because they're like, well, let's do it at night, but... A lot of the Lost World takes place at night. In fact, most of the action, and it sucks compared to this. Yeah, I know. This looks just better. But this scene looks amazing. I like that little outhouse that Gennaro like, runs to. It feels like it would be one of those random buildings in an amusement park that, again, you're like, well, why would they have a bathroom right here? Yeah, because are people getting out of the cars? Yeah, right. Malcolm providing the comedy here saying i hate being right all the time yeah. just an unbelievably great line as the t-rex is stomping in front of their car i know and he never really breaks his cool there's not a lot of emotional outbursts from him although he's definitely animated when he's doing his whole little exercise to try to save the kids with the flare oh yeah i want to touch on that in a second that's another thing kind of like nedry's plan that i was always sort of confused by but we'll we'll get there in a second Another thing, in addition to dinosaurs turning into birds, is the whole T-Rex's vision being based on movement. This is something that Crichton introduces into the book, and he sort of applies it to all of the dinosaurs, which is different. I don't know if he does with the raptors, but a lot of the dinosaurs, it seems like the same kind of basic idea. Whereas in the movie, it's just T-Rex. This was a very popular theory in the early 90s and, and probably the time period leading up to the movie. And I think I might be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it fell out of favor. Okay. And they don't, don't they really no longer that. really think that about yeah. the T-Rex. I don't know but how But that's you the thing even... that always changes. It's like they don't know. Yeah, what do they base these theories off of? Who knows? How one like set of bones was found compared to another? <laughs> Lex, for some reason, panics and turns on a flashlight, which attracts the dinosaur's attention, and the T-Rex goes to the vehicle with the two kids in it. The Tyrannosaurus's roars were made from a combination of dog, penguin, tiger, alligator, and elephant Holy sounds. Shit. It's so loud. Yes. Yeah, and this is like when I was a kid, the scariest part. Oh for yeah, me. I was like terrified. It's of the definitely. T-Rex. I don't know if it's ever the movie's ever this intense again. Yeah, well, the Rex attacks the vehicle with the two kids and breaks down through the sunroof. And it's only like this piece of glass between the teeth of the animal oh, and these kids. It's just awesome and scary. They're screaming. And it's this huge, powerful animatronic thing. Basically, the crew had to have safety meetings about this T-Rex. It weighed 12,000 pounds. Holy shit. It was extremely powerful. They had to use flashing lights to announce when it was about to come on to alert the crew. Because if you stood next to it and the head went by at speed, it felt like a bus going by. Oh, it was wow. just this massive thing. And the yeah. potential for accidents is very high, so you have to really, really make sure you're doing this all safely. Yeah, I would love to know what that would have been like to experience this thing in real life. Yeah, I remember interviews, and sometimes this is just like, you know. Hype. Building hype, but yeah. I think like the kids were like, there were teeth marks. 
on the glass. It's, you know, like it was actually biting and closing. Like you were scared of it because whether or not it's a real animal or not, it, you could get hurt badly. Yeah, right. More Malcolm comedic relief where he's like rubbing the windshield with his hands yeah. like in a weird way. Meanwhile, him and Grant are sitting there and from their perspective, it's like these kids could be being eaten. Like oh, they yeah. can't really tell what's going on exactly. Because you get hung up in this action sequence that's happening with the kids when you do cut back to those two it feels like it took them a while to react oh like yeah to, they didn't even leap to action they somehow didn't notice the t-rex until it broke out of the fence altogether yeah lex and tim and Gennaro are freaking out when they see it eating the goat and dropping the piece of the goat on them but somehow grant and malcolm are like oblivious at that yeah, point right. and there is that initial like it, it wouldn't even cross your mind that the fence isn't gonna work you know yeah so when the fucking cords for it or whatever just go like flying you're like holy shit grant lights a flare to distract the animal he, he tries to throw it into the woods and then malcolm comes out with another flare and he's like running away from the suvs and he's yelling get the kids i'm gonna be honest i always thought he was talking to the dinosaur like he was he had, he thought he was brave and then he panics and he's oh, almost wow. like go okay but I realized yeah, yeah. recently, shockingly recently, I was like, oh, I guess he's talking to Grant to get the kids. Yeah. I never picked up on that. Okay, I always thought okay. it was supposed to be funny that he's yelling get. I think because when I saw it in the theater, I think someone laughed Okay, when he yelled that. And so yeah. I, th- I thought that well, that's I what Well, I will say, to be fair to the thought, this heroic move feels like shockingly off character for him. Not that he's like a coward like Gennaro or anything, but he almost seems overly animated and heroic here. I think Goldblum pushed for this to happen, yeah, yeah. to have like a heroic thing thrown in there rather than just get injured, right? which I think was initially what was in the script. The Tyrannosaurus pursues Malcolm. He gets injured. It doesn't really seem like he gets bit. Although it's unclear what does happen to him. I mean, it seems like he has some sort of mid-body injury. Yes. Well, it's his leg. And oh, is it? Okay. It, the same thing happens to him. But his shirt is constantly open after this. So I'm always, that's why I'm always <laughs> thinking that it's like his stomach or something. I think maybe they just couldn't figure out how to make this look right. And they sort of just breeze by it. But it does seem like he more or less gets knocked over. Yeah. Rather than actually like bitten or anything. But it's sort of hard to tell what happens. And then the animal knocks the building down that Gennaro's hiding in, and the only thing still standing is the toilet he's sitting on. Oh, yeah. And Embarrassing. He, the T-Rex devours Gennaro, and this is another personal memory from seeing the film. So the first time, this was, like, very scary for me, and then so the second time I saw the movie, there was a convenient bathroom trip Oh yeah, that I gave myself here to, like, <laughs> not see him get right. eaten again. I mean, it's funny how big a pussy's kids are. <laughs> like, it's well, not really yeah. that scary. When we get to the part, I'll talk about how haunting my experience was with the part that scared me and how bad it scared me for such a long time after. The T-Rex circles back when Lex screams after Grant pulls her out from underneath the turned-over vehicle, and then it gets right up into their face, basically, and he's covering Lex's mouth and saying he can't see us if we don't move. And this was always one of the more memorable moments of the yeah. movie. Shockingly brave. I don't understand the T-Rex's area because that cliff is see, that seems like it's on the, the same, same side. side. I know. So, in other words, I'm assuming like over further down to the right I think is it, the area it was standing in and then there's must be a cliff like in its area or something, which seems dangerous. 
And I know they're expecting it to have basic life instincts, but it's like... Yeah, I don't know. Unless somehow we got turned all the way I, around. I kind of do feel like maybe we get turned around because we're coming back this time. I agree with you. It feels but the way like it's shot, it though, like of... when Ellie and Muldoon show up later, it seems like that is the side that the the T Rex came from. I know. I, I've always thought this too. That it seems like it feels like where they end up <laughs> going down the cliff is where the T Rex just came from. Yeah. So basically, there's a big cliff behind where the fence used to be. They use the broken fence. It has to be because the fence is broken. Yeah. And they use the things that the T Rex broke, like the parts of the fence to scale down this cliff while the T-Rex knocks the SUV off the side of the cliff that yeah. goes flying right by them. It, does it lands in a tree. Like really poor planning though from a structural design if this cliff is just in the T-Rex's area and then I guess there's no way the T-Rex could get down this cliff and survive but then there are other dinosaurs down there. Yeah, well they sort of gloss over like the different pens and all that yeah. stuff. And they don't really, they do have Hammond deliver a line early in the movie about the different moats and all this shit that are helping to separate stuff. But like, you don't really ever see any of that stuff. Right, right. I don't really know how Tim stays in the SUV because the roof was like destroyed and the sunroof is gone. And somehow it's upside down and it gets pushed over the side of a cliff and he just stays in it and is not injured at all. Apparently. Especially when you see Malcolm get injured pretty easily, <laughs> the fact that these other people are just oh able Tim to is he goes through unscathed. like a real yeah. crazy time. Muldoon and Ellie are dispatched to find the grandkids. You have to remember Hammond and Arnold, etc. They have no idea what just happened. Yeah, and I, I, a lot of things are happening really quickly here, so some of the details get lost. Like Ellie, I guess, must have just gotten back. Yeah. Right? Like, she's just well, getting back. Well, the guy like that she was with, Harding... Had to make it to the boat, ...was right? one of the people leaving on the boat. Wu is someone that leaves on the boat. Like, basically, everyone else we've seen and leaves on the boat. Meanwhile, Nedry's already blown it and is just living in denial. Even if he doesn't fuck all of this up, he's too late. He's not going to get the Jeep there because of the storm. The boat leaves early, which is one of those ironic things. Like, he's already... Yeah. It's already too late. He can't get his Jeep unstuck, and then we get the first appearance of another lesser-known dinosaur pre-Jurassic Park, the Dilophosaurus. Yes, and this this was the part that, as a kid, completely horrified me, and I was just scared forever after this. Well, let me give you a little background on this dinosaur, because this is one of the things that I found out after the fact and was sort of disappointed about. The movie introduced this this species to a huge audience, but... It's the dinosaur with which the most liberties were taken. Michael Crichton invented the venom aspect, and then Spielberg created the neck frill. That's right. The which, part that fucking freaked me out. Which exists with some modern-day lizards. There are lizards that have those. Oh, They're yeah. They're small. It's like Rescuers Down Under. Joanna. Right. But was not a feature of the Dilophosaurus. They know that for a fact. They Obviously, they don't know about the venom, but Crichton just made it up. It wasn't based right. off of anything. They were also much larger than portrayed in the movie. Spielberg made them smaller to differentiate from the raptors, who, when we get to the raptors, he actually made bigger than any that had ever been discovered to that point, although there were more discoveries later. But having said all of that, the appearance here is cool, and Nedry's death via spitter dinosaur is a fun kill. Oh, yeah, and I think probably what scared me so much was 
this lure in like they lure you in with this thing it makes those hooting sounds yeah yeah like uh, you're like oh this is like a little playful cute friendly dinosaur and when those fucking (laughs) the fins around its head come out and it's just making these horrible noises it freaked me out so much and then i do think the venom thing kind of fucked with me a little bit because it kind of looks like almost like tar yeah right in his eyes it's supposed to like cause blindness or temporary paralysis I think the reason why they speculate that it's possible Dilophosaurus was poisonous, although not a spitter, is because they think based off of its bone structure that it had a weak jaw and it was a carnivore. So they're like, well, how did it kill things? Because most dinosaurs would clench and rip to kill like a T-Rex or something has like a huge, powerful jaw. So they couldn't really figure it out. So like maybe it bit things and had poison in it and waited for it to die or whatever. Then Crichton turns that into the spitting thing. Yeah, I think it's, like, awesome. It, it lures you in with, like, the hooting sounds. It seems kind of, like, curious. And in the movie, it makes it seem almost like because Nedry's, like, an asshole to it, that that's yeah. why it eats it. Right. <laughs> Even though that has nothing Throws to do with it, but it's fun it. to, yeah. to joke there. And then, yeah, when it springs up its neck frill thing, it makes that, like, rattlesnake oh. sound with, like, a kind of a raspy growl. It's really cool. Yeah. So let's take this opportunity now to talk a little bit about Hammond and what exactly goes on with this park and his whole spared no expense bullshit. And as you pointed out, this is a theory or an observation, really. It's not even really like a theory. It's just an observation that's out there on Reddit and in various places, different articles. So let's point out some of the, the things that come up. No armed guards. Oh, yeah. In case things went wrong. And by the way, this is a tour that he sent his fucking grandchildren on <laughs> with no safety precautions, really. No backup generators, so the fences would never lose their charge. Because even if Nedry doesn't pull this shit, something's going to happen someday where oh, yeah. the fences go out. You Especially need to have the backup generators. Talk about like the tropical storm element. There could never be a time where you could risk the fences being off. No. The only rationale that I can come up with is like, well, how likely is it that we lose power and the dinosaurs are figuring out that they're able to not touch. Well, the that's fence that anymore. plays into Malcolm's whole thing. Yeah, is like you're trying to control nature, but you don't know anything about it. And Muldoon tells us that the raptors kept testing the fence that's and all true. this different yep. shit. So it's like some of these species are smarter than they thought. There's no floodways created in the event of heavy rains, even though the park is located in a place that seemingly would get a lot of rain. Right. So you would need to build things to prevent flooding. None of those things have been built. There are no additional gas-powered vehicles in reserve in case the tour vehicles lost power. So if the tour vehicles lose power somewhere in the park, they're basically just stuck there. Yeah, well, the other thing I was thinking is, like, what was the future plan for these tours? Because if you're going out, like, three cars at a time, huh? Well, they probably had more that they could could put on the track or something. Sure, but, I mean, it's going to get backlogged, you know? Yeah. You kind of have to limit your audience for... Yeah, they do a better job of giving your crowds more options and more th- ways to view things in Jurassic World. That's where true. they have yeah. that sphere thing, and then they have people walking up to exhibits. Then they have that sea dinosaur Oof. with almost like a sea world right. presentation yep. of it and stuff. So people would be doing all kinds of different things. Whereas this park seems more simplistic. More like a safari ride. Seemingly no place for employees to live on the island as they all were fleeing and presumably leaving the dinosaurs to weather a potential hurricane on their own. 
millions, <laughs> yeah. if not billions of dollars invested in these animals. A hurricane is coming. Everyone leaves. Hopefully, they'll still be fine when we come back. Yeah. It doesn't really seem like that was thought out. You do wonder, like, what these people's, like, nightlife was like back in Costa Rica. <laughs> I'm just assuming they, like, take this ship back and forth from the island every day for work. I guess. Well, yeah, I think that's the point. It's like you would think that they would have places for people to live so that they could, even if it was just six weeks on, six weeks off right, or something. Right. Like, you wouldn't, the whole idea of commuting all the time seems ridiculous. That's true. And, like, what was the rest of these people? But. I don't know, like what the what the skeleton crew of people that stay, like what I mean, were they? Is there a later ship that they catch back? Or? Well, the dinosaurs may not be breeding on the island, but the employees would be. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And be all kinds of romances. <laughs> and of course, the biggest thing, Nedry. The differences in presentation between the book and the movie, yeah, are important because in the book, Nedry. He has a legitimate beef. He wants oh, more yeah. money for a reason, which is that he he basically has extended his time and done more work for them than originally contracted, and then they threaten and bully him to do it. But no matter what, you have one fucking guy yeah, I know. doing all this shit, and he should be the one that has you over the barrel. If you're only going to have one person, then always their bad, demands, it's like, yeah. you got to give in. It's always a bad business practice anyway. Now- they do allude to something else with Nedry's people in Cambridge or whatever. Yes. But again, Nedry's the connection to those people. In my opinion, none of these things are plot holes, though. These are not nitpicks. These are part of the character oh, flaws of Hammond. I agree. This It's intentional that, that you should be picking up on these things because he's that is part of it. into this because, as I said, he's blinded by the light of discovery, blinded by ambition, not considering yeah what he's doing they go as far to have arnold have the line of i can't get jurassic park back online without dennis nedry i mean they're they're putting it in your face this is not an accident (laughs) that we're at this point in the movie this was a mistake to trust this guy with this much power there are some moments of action and suspense created just for the movie that don't necessarily involve dinosaurs some of them do some don't but they're new scenes that are so effective and they're the reason why the movie is so great and is actually better than the book. So first would be Tim in the SUV in the tree and then Grant going up into the tree as a search and rescue, getting Tim out of it, and then the SUV crashes down after them, basically chasing them out of the tree. It does seem crazy that they're able to like scale down this cliff tree by tree. No, they scale down the cliff by just using that wire, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to tell how big the cliff is, though. It's big, but you only get that one shot, but you don't see all the way to the ground because the SUV lands into the tree. That's true. It's hard to get a sense of exactly how big it is. It seems big, but then there is that little moment later, which has always annoyed me, when Ellie and Muldoon show up. Another example would be Ellie and Muldoon coming upon the carnage, finding Malcolm with his injured leg, and then narrowly escaping the T-Rex in hot pursuit. This is the scene where Malcolm's like, must go faster. Yeah, which this action sequence is amazing. Yeah, it's a cool chase. It's not in the book. It's awesome. I love Muldoon's little smirk after they've gotten away from the T-Rex as if he like kind of enjoyed it. It yeah, was yeah. like a fun thing. And there's more later, too. The electric fence, Ellie's trip to get the power back on. These are all things that are just sort yeah. of created for the movie. I-, I read a little bit about the book, and it did seem like the journey back by Dr. Grant is is a lot different than... Oh, everything is at yeah. a certain point. 
So Ellie knows Alan and the kids survived the initial attack because she finds footprints, but she doesn't know where they are. Oh, one thing that I wanted to bring up, back to the, the Nedry death scene, the camera focuses on the, the Barbasol can. Yeah. When I was a kid, I was always like taking that to like mean things like the embryos like that were in there were going to turn into dinosaurs or something oh my god yeah <laughs> i, I thought you were going to say like a potential sequel or something because like somebody else finds that that's a possibility that i could have thought that yeah i'm not going to rule that out i was always taking that to mean something more than it does i think it was just symbolic of his failure yeah just being buried in the mud and no one would really know what he was doing right I know that I keep saying in the book, but like they discover that he's killed in the book. Okay. Where that they don't really have time for that in the movie. Yeah, yeah. And it's but almost like, like I think the what you were saying is like having that happen is almost saying like when or if this is discovered, they're not really gonna ever know exactly what the fuck he was doing. Yeah, I know. And I would love it on. if there was a scene in the movie where they were <laughs> like, What the fuck happened to Nedry? Ellie and Muldoon take Malcolm back to the command center while Alan and Lex and Tim try to navigate their way through the park. So the thing I was saying that I, always bothered me was just whenever Ellie and Muldoon find that the other SUV was thrown off that cliff, basically, there's just a hard cut to them at the bottom Yeah, where the vehicle is now. It's like, well, how the fuck did they get down there so fast? They were rushing to maybe get out of there as fast as possible because they heard the T-Rex roar in the distance. And then all of a sudden, they're just like, well, we're going to go all the way down there. It happens in two seconds. And then all of a sudden, they're all the way back up. Yeah, that's And Malcolm's true. like, we got to go, we got to go, we got to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an awesome scene, and it's very suspenseful. But I know that they're just like cutting through that faster out of necessity, but it just yeah. seems weird. And that's it for the T-Rex, right? Until like you know we have the big reveal later in the movie. No. There's the scene where it eats the Gallimimus in front of Lex and Tim and Alan. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. But yeah, I think they they sort of come up with other ways to to make suspense happen with those three, and then we're like sort of building towards the raptors being released. Malcolm's okay for now. I gave him a shot of morphine. That'll be fine. Who better to get the children through Jurassic Park than a dinosaur expert? You know the first attraction I ever built when I came down from Scotland? Flea Circus, Petticoat Lane. Really quite wonderful. We had uh, a wee trapeze and a uh, uh, um, car carousel. <laughs> and a seesaw. 
They all move, motorized, of course, but uh, people would say they could see the fleas. Oh, I can see the fleas, mummy, can't you see the fleas? Clown fleas and high wire fleas and fleas on parade. This place, I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Something that was real. Something that they could see and touch. The name, not devoid of merit. But you can't think through this one, John. You have to feel it. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Having Nedry was a mistake. That's obvious. We're over-dependent on automation. I can see that now. Now, the next time, everything's correctable. John. Creation is an act of sheer will. Next time, it'll be flawless. It's still the flea circus. It's all an illusion. When we have control again... You've never had control. That's the illusion. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place. But I made a mistake, too. I didn't have enough respect for that power, and it's out now. The only thing that matters now are the people we love. Alan and Lex and Tim. John, they're out there where people are dying. So... There's a little bit of like a cool down moment between Hammond and Ellie where he's eating the ice cream. He's talking about his stupid flea circus That's and right. how it was yeah. all an illusion. And Ellie's like, John, it's still an illusion. It's yeah, all yeah. an illusion. You didn't have control of this ever. And he's still in such denial thinking like, okay, it was a mistake to hire Nedry, but things will be different. We'll learn from these mistakes. And she's like, dude, it's not. We've yeah, already yeah. passed the point right, of no right. return. Yeah. Like we're not coming back. From and this. I do like I like that element of like how delusional he is, even though he still is kind of portrayed as certainly not a, a villain, and he will go on to play a role in getting the park back up and running and everything. But he is just like this is where he seems like kind of a crazed madman. And I, I do like it seems like he's even bought all of this like expensive ice cream. You know what yeah. I mean? And it mentions the spared no expense again, but it's like, again, you're you're spending money on ice cream. You haven't even really had anyone come visit, and you have like all this expensive ass ice cream here. <laughs> in the park, Alan and the kids are bonding. They spend the night in a tree. There's a brachiosaurus in in the mix. Lex is the only one exhibiting any PTSD. Tim, for some reason, seems fine, even though I would be pretty sure he'd be I, fucked up. Yeah, I know, physically and mentally. They discover dinosaur eggs in the park, basically proving what Malcolm said, that life found a way. Yuck. Oh, great. Now she'll never try anything new. Just sit in her room and never come out and play on her computer. I'm a hacker. That's what I said. You're a nerd. I'm not a computer nerd. I prefer to be called a hacker. Oh, God. You know what this is? 
dinosaurs are breeding. Grandpa said all the dinosaurs were girls. Amphibian DNA. What's that? Well, on the tour, the film said they used frog DNA to fill in the gene sequence gaps. They mutated the dinosaur genetic code and blended it with that of frogs. Now, some West African frogs have been known to spontaneously change sex from male to female in a single sex environment. Malcolm was right. Look. Life found a way. Dr. Grant explains to us that the amphibian DNA used to complete the dinosaur DNA, there are some species of frogs that can change their sex spontaneously yeah. when in a single-sex environment. Now, he puts this together pretty quickly. <laughs> Yeah, it's a jump. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, like, how... There's a lot of That has to be the way. ...in science where you're just like, okay, I guess you could use other animals to, like, fill this in, and that that would somehow be enough to cause a dinosaur to change sex and blow... I mean, there's a lot of, like, okay, I guess. Yeah, you're right. But you kind of get it. You get sure. the point of it. Goldblum, back at Mission Control, beefcake shot, shirt open, yeah. chest. Right. Just insane that that's just in this movie <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, yeah. They're all unable to decipher Nedry's code to reactivate the security system. Hammond and Arnold reboot the park's entire system then. Hold on to your butts. The group shuts down the park's grid and retreats to an emergency bunker while Arnold heads to a maintenance shed to complete the re rebooting process. One thing that I'm never clear about is like how protected this control center area is in terms of the rest of the park. I mean, I guess it's not anymore. Well, once the raptors are out, all bets are off. Yeah, I yeah. Because the locks are all shut down. There's That's really true. nothing yeah. containing anything at a certain point. There's a T-Rex moment where it eats a Gallimimus out of a f herd of them that had been running by. And I guess it's a good point that you bring that up because that is part of it during the uh, initial Nedry being gone is they do make a point to be like the raptor cages are still up at that point. Yeah. Because I guess just for the narrative of the movie, Nedry didn't t need to take those ones down. So at this point, yeah, until they shut everything down, right. the raptors were contained, but then the T-Rex is free to wander in and out of any paddock it likes. It eats a Gallimimus. I feel like Alan and Tim are a little too insensitive of Lex's terror they're yes. like kind of goofing about it it's like I don't know I get that it's supposed to be funny and it is like a lighthearted movie at its core but I mean come on this has been a traumatic fucking thing for these people they yeah I know they've seen people get killed they were almost killed now we're they've like laughing about this ripped apart <laughs> when Arnold fails to return Ellie and Muldoon head to the shed on their way, they discover the shutdown has deactivated the remaining fences and the velociraptors have now escaped. So finally, after all of this buildup, we're going to meet these raptors, which, as I mentioned, are kind of a new thing, I think, for a lot of people yeah. back then. Not that people didn't know about them. Obviously, people that were into dinosaurs knew about them. But they just weren't like a mainstream dinosaur until Jurassic Park. Right. So they've built them up, and now we're going to see them. Yeah, and I, I do love... Everything that happens with Muldoon, and of course, once again, the attack comes not from the front, but from the side. I love that. I, I love the way that they set that whole sequence up, because it's not like an intense 
scary chase or attack or anything. It's they've got like this element of surprise. Spielberg wanted ten foot long raptors, though to that point, none had ever been discovered that size. However, during the filming of Jurassic Park, a new discovery was made, and they called these things Utah Raptors, which were the size of those in the movie. And the people working on this movie were like kind of blown <laughs> yeah, away the by this. Was They're like some sort of like premonition. By yeah, Spielberg? like we invented them and then we discovered them. Like it just is a kind of a weird thing that happened. Ellie and Muldoon are being hunted on the way to the shed. So Muldoon distracts the raptors while Ellie runs to the shed. I thought it was funny watching Ellie run, and when there's shots of her, like, jumping over the logs and stuff and, like, swinging from a tree branch, like, how shitty the wig is on the stunt double. Oh, yeah. Like, it's so clearly not her hair a couple of times. <laughs> right. where you're just like, oh, God, that looks terrible. Yeah. I-, I will say, though, for a scene where nothing happens to her, it kind of creeped me out as a kid. Like, this whole sequence of her running... It just feels like something's going to happen. Yeah. Over walkie-talkie, Hammond and Malcolm talk Ellie through turning the power systems back on. This coincides with Alan, Lex, and Tim scaling a deactivated perimeter fence. Timmy lags behind a bit and is still on the fence when Ellie restores power. So Tim ends up getting zapped off the fence, and Grant has to revive him with mouth-to-mouth. Yeah. this is the same kid that fell off of a cliff oh, I in know. an SUV, and now he's getting shocked by an electrical fence designed for dinosaurs. Falls like 20 feet on his back. Seems yeah. like he would be fucked up. Meanwhile, Lex is like snapping a pic of Grant like kissing her brother, and she's like, I'm going to use that for yeah. blackmail later. In the shed, Ellie is attacked by a raptor after she turns the power back on, who she narrowly escapes from, but then discovers Arnold's severed arm confirming he was killed by the raptor. This was like kind of a crazy moment for me as oh, a kid. Yeah. Just because, as mentioned, this was the first PG-13 movie I saw in the theater. I think I had probably seen little bits and pieces of like Jaws or something on TV. But yeah. like this was the sort of stuff that at that age I had never seen. So the the idea of like a severed arm was like horrifying. Yeah, and the fact that this dude that you just kind of spent a lot of time with was just killed off screen. That's kind of like haunting because you the last you leave this dude, he just kind of goes off. All right, I'm good. I'll be able to turn this stuff back on. Now, they do mention that he's like gone for too long and that's what leads them to go. But it is, I, I don't know, it, it's kind of, you know, unceremonious that he's just dead and his arm is there. And you're like, how did this raptor get down here? Outside, Muldoon is caught off guard by a sneak attack and killed by another raptor. Yeah. The famous moment of him, like, realizing what's happened, and he's just like, clever girl. Yeah, has the wherewithal to, like, appreciate, (laughs) you know, what the raptor did right before it bites his face off. The peripheral characters are dropping like flies at this point. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. (laughs) We know he's not going to make it to the end now. Alan, Lex, and Tim make it back to the visitor center, not fully aware of everything that's happened and unknowing of where all the other people are. Obviously, they know things got fucked up and some serious shit's gone now, but they they don't know exactly what's going on or what's happened. Alan goes to look for Ellie, leaving Lex and Tim inside so they can eat. Remember, he doesn't know that the raptors are on the loose, so this isn't quite as irresponsible. Yeah. It's still kind of a questionable decision. Yeah, I would agree. Tim's had a fucking wild 18 hours at this point. Yeah, I know. Just one thing after the other. Alan finds Ellie, but there is a raptor 
in the visitor center that chases the kids into the kitchen. Yeah. So if you're keeping track at home, there's three raptors. I think one is supposed to just be stuck in that bunker after Ellie gets out of there. The one that. Well, yeah, it's confusing at the end which two raptors are left. It's seemingly the one that is going to end up trapped in this kitchen sequence has to just be trapped there. That one seems like it could not get out. Oh, that's true. Yeah. But we'll we'll get there in a second. Okay. Lex and Tim run into the kitchen, and we find out that raptors can open these doors. <laughs> we, <laughs> Which uh, yeah. seems plausible, but it happens too fast. Right. Yeah. It seems like it would take a little bit more time for them to figure this out. It wouldn't just happen immediately, which the, is kind of what happens. These door handles are all kind of sized appropriately for raptor claws. <laughs> <laughs> this is another one of those awesome scenes, one of the more memorable moments. I think everybody who watched the film remembers this as something to take away this from like it. kitchen sequence very yeah, yeah very suspenseful they're going in between the different parts of the kitchen it's like the shining at one point they're trying to lock it in the freezer yeah well they're kind of fleeing around the corners of these different like islands in the kitchen and then tim knocks over this spoon which causes a noise and then lex gets her first hero moment where she gets the attention of the raptors away from her brother who's kind of just sitting there yeah panicking and she's trying to lock herself into like a cupboard and oh, the way yeah, they shoot this cool. is is awesome because you think that the raptor is a, is diving right at her right and you don't realize that what the raptor is seeing is her, her reflection so it's actually it dives right into a metal like cabinet like stainless steel yeah. yeah and she's actually around the corner and had dove at her reflection so she gets out and then tim has this great idea of like i'm going to run into that walk-in freezer grab the side and this dinosaur has never experienced ice so it's gonna like hit this freezer and go flying and then i'm gonna run out and lock it into this freezer these kids are like super sharp i mean i guess if you're like grandfather is figuring out how to clone dinosaurs yeah but i don't even know really if hammond would know the science or not yeah it's kind of not. unclear yeah if he's just sort of this visionary guy but he has Taking to get the other credit people for to the do work this of, stuff you know like a dr Wu. Yeah, as Malcolm says, they stood on the shoulders of the scientists who came before them and didn't have the discipline that came with acquiring this knowledge for themselves. That's right. The kids managed to escape the kitchen and meet up with Alan and Ellie. The four of them retreat to the control room with a raptor in pursuit, the one that's left. So right now, there's one raptor that the last time we saw Ellie had shut it into the maintenance shed and fled that area and then we know one got trapped in the freezer and locked in there so at this point there's just one (laughs) that dude from the shining comes and lets it out of the freezer (laughs) grady that's right alan ends up having to hold the door closed when the raptor's trying to get in and then ultimately ellie helps him (laughs) it is kind of a funny shot of (laughs) <laughs> them holding back the raptors like pulling the handle down and trying to push its way in and they're pushing its way back this leaves lex to navigate the park's computer system and finish restoring power to the various security systems in the park because yeah. it's been established that she's into computers so this is like her second hero <laughs> right. moment pretty big leap ellie is trying to grab the gun with her foot that they have it's one of the guns that came out of a cabinet at some point that muldoon had or something 
Tim just standing there. Oh, like a not being any ass. help. I, 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 yes, I was dialing in on that too. He could so easily. All he's doing is rooting for his sister, basically. I guess so they wanted to the like gun. avoid a scenario that had a kid being involved with a gun. Well, they could have like... later digitally changed it to a walkie-talkie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's just a weird... Like, why even have them have the gun if you're not going to use logic here? Because Tim is doing nothing except standing there while his sister figures out this computer shit. And then you have Alan and Ellie trying to hold the door. Ellie trying to grab the gun with her foot. It's like, come on. He's standing right there. But Lex gets everything back restored, including the phone. So they call Hammond, who then calls off the island for help. However, as that's going on, the raptor gets into the room by trying to crash through the glass... They manage to escape through the drop ceiling because there's conveniently just a ladder in there. And they're like, all right, well, the let's park go up was still the under construction. Somehow, this drop ceiling supports all of their weight. Yeah, that, that is shocking. Lex almost falls through, though, when the raptor comes up through and then Grant like kicks the raptor in the face. And then she like falls down through. It's a pretty cool looking moment. Yeah. But this is one of the like subtle uses of CGI in the film because that was obviously a stunt woman doing that. Right. And they digitally put Lex's face on top of the stunt woman's. Cause I've seen in one of the bonus features the undoctored footage, and it's oh, just okay. clearly a different wow. person. It's kind of cool. Yeah. Having the raptors jump looks pretty good, too. Yeah. Most of this stuff looks awesome. In fact... I know I was like kind of being a little hard on the CGI when we first see the Brachiosaurus at the beginning of the movie. That is the worst CGI in the movie. I agree, yeah. Even the part where the T-Rex eats the Gallimimus and the Gallimimus herd runs by them and everything, it looks better than that opening part. Yeah. And the raptor stuff is pretty cool. It's, again, kind of like the first time we see the T-Rex. It's like a melding of animatronic models and then the CGI, too. Right. And they managed to do it in a way where it never feels super herky-jerky. Yeah, I know. Like the it, movements it, it always pretty feel seamless. fluid. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's weird because it feels and looks so much better than most things trying to accomplish similar things today. Because now it would just be 100% CGI. And I guess like my issue with like today, too, is it's CGI. The whole fucking park is CGI. Like everything. You know what I mean? It, yeah. For, for today's movies. Well, it's kind of like the difference between the original Star Wars trilogy and then the prequel trilogy where oh, yeah. everything was CGI. Right. Just because you have the technology to make everything computer generated doesn't mean you should. <laughs> no, I agree. In fact, we're like I mean, Ian Malcolm's about movies. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, really. <laughs> you were so concerned with whether or not you could, you didn't stop to ask yourself if you should. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's like I complain about it on like every episode, but it is this overall digital look that. It, all, all of these old movies, I love so much more because of that authentic feel. The four of them escape through the ceiling into the main lobby. They come down on the scaffolding, and that leads them onto like the T-Rex bones from the main lobby. And they end up being chased by the one raptor who jumps onto the bones as well. They all kind of go crashing to the floor, and then another raptor arrives. I take it to be the raptor that ellie had left at the maintenance shed because that one seemingly only had to push a door handle to get that's out that's true yeah and the other one i think was locked in the freezer but now they're cornered by two raptors in the main lobby i always notice this yeah. and it's pretty much the rest of the movie from here on out laura dern's hair looks like she just came out of the shower it's completely clean and combed <laughs> it's insane that this happened i know it's a stupid nitpick but i noticed it as a kid as a kid like, i was why like is why does so her clean? hair look good yeah. all of a sudden 
when did she shower? Because five minutes ago it looked terrible like everyone else. But whatever. All right. Especially we'll, on the we'll helicopter when they're flying yeah. off the island. I'm like. Did she just get a perm? Yeah, a perm. <laughs> All is lost. It's going to be a massacre. The two oh, raptors yeah. are going to tear them to pieces. One thing, Muldoon's always talking about the one raptor, but you can never really tell. No, they all look the, the same. Yeah. yeah, I always think there's going to be like one bigger than the other. They didn't make really... one blue. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. But then, as the raptors jump to attack, at the last second, the T-Rex somehow silently appears through what... It seems like a completely unnecessary huge opening in the building. I, yeah, I, it, this is one of those things that you have to just accept it. Yeah, it's I, the last possible second. It can't. I mean, if it's bursting through a wall, you think that doesn't go unnoticed. Like the Kool Aid guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the T Rex catches one of the raptors in its mouth that was jumping towards them. It kills both of the raptors, essentially saving the humans. Spielberg decided to change the climax of the script to bring the T Rex back because he felt like that's what the audience wanted slash expected i wouldn't disagree i don't know if i expected the t-rex to show back up but well i would expect there to be more closure some with the t-rex yeah. yeah and everyone would be disappointed if she didn't reemerge. and it's this sort of crazy baby face turn that kind of gets continued over into i know now jurassic the t-rex World. is yeah like the hulk hogan of <laughs> jurassic park yeah well it takes a it I'm takes the l in over. three yeah because they have the spinosaurus which is like another large predator that they i never really I, I mean granted i'm not like a dinosaur expert so who the fuck knows i never really pictured the the spinosaur being like bigger than the t-rex but that's how they make it in jurassic park 3 yeah and so the t-rex kind of gets killed off in that movie and you're like oh wow and it's you know trying to put over the new villain is like right, even yeah. scarier and then they do that bullshit in Jurassic World where they make like a new dinosaur and then the T-Rex has to like help out at the end. Which is actually the best part in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it is like pro wrestling. It's like, okay, yeah. here comes our hero to That's save right. us. I love when the T-Rex is left standing though and it's it's roaring in the visitor center and then that when dinosaurs yeah. ruled the earth banner kind of like comes down. It's such it's, an iconic shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's definitely like one of those filmmaker touches to like kind of oh. geek out over. And I mean like the... Score is just going off the charts at this oh, part, yeah. too. So Hammond pulls up in a Jeep with Malcolm, and you're just kind of like, well, I guess Hammond gets to live? This is fucking bullshit. This is this asshole's fault. Yeah, but that's the thing. I, I feel like it kind of makes sense because he just never seems that surface-level evil, you know? <laughs> He's no, so know. lovable, like, despite this horrible decision he made. They give all of his bad traits to Gennaro, and then sort of pass all of the blame onto Nedry, and it, it kind of conveniently lets him off the hook. Malcolm, Grant, Sattler, Lex, Tim, and yes, Hammond, all board a helicopter and leave the island. Just majestic shots of the ocean. Oh, yeah. Birds flying in a V formation like it's fucking Mighty Ducks I, I know, yeah. <laughs> I was like, Averman's going to get his guitar out. It's, we're going to all have a campfire sing-along to We Are the Champions. Music soaring. The the ocean is awesome. And frankly, watching it several times in preparation for this podcast, no matter how many times I've seen the movie, still in awe after all these years. Oh, I you agree. just totally buy into it by the end. It's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and it's just so incredibly rewatchable, too. You can finish it and almost you could start it right back over again. It's kind of this 
interesting combination that I, I just don't think could be replicated where it's somehow timeless and yet also has heavy 90s nostalgia at the oh, same yeah. time. Like yeah. it's somehow like this combination of both, which I don't think anything else really matches up because I think you'd have to go one way or the other. It's like it's either timeless or it's set in one era and yet somehow it's both to me oh i agree and like i said over these past however many years now where we talk about like what sort of the studio schedule has become with these franchise movies and always just trying to bring something back like the idea of a movie like this existing like i'm always wanting a new jurassic park you know and i I just it's so hard to even have a concept this original that works this well yeah because for me this is just unbelievable on the surface it's a movie that really doesn't need sequels but i understand why and i understand where the temptation would come from because once you've created a universe where bringing dinosaurs back from extinction is possible why wouldn't you want to like play in that sandbox some more but you're ultimately going to have to try to live up to the first one, and none of yeah. the subsequent films do. For so many reasons, but one being, I don't know what the plot would be that would make me happy, but every single one of them, I'm always like, this is what this is about. I, this is not really the direction I would have pictured this to go. Yeah. It was funny. Lindsay, I had her watch Jurassic World with me, which... She has gone on record to say that that like of all the movies I've had her watch for the pod, that might be the worst. <laughs> it's but, weird because I do feel like a lot of people like it. And yeah, it has I know. Like a positive reputation. I, I was kind of down on it after seeing it in theaters a, a lot for the reasons that I, I thought there was good stuff to it, and I thought it was fun. It's definitely fun at parts, but I remember knowing the reaction was positive and kind of being like, really, but. It, Lindsay asked me, like, because so she she saw the original and she saw Jurassic World and she's like, so what are the other sequels about? And I kind of like went on this long overview of trying to explain what The Lost World is about <laughs> because it's just like it's kind of ridiculous. The plot. Well, to let's it. talk about The Lost World a little. Well, you know what? Before we talk about The Lost World, where do you have Jurassic Park in terms of like Spielberg's pantheon? Do you have it well, as like I, a top three? Yeah, I have to because. I think Jaws and Jurassic Park are like maybe in my top five movies of all time. I I think he considers Jurassic Park like his unofficial sequel to Jaws because Spielberg really didn't have anything to do with the Jaws sequels. Yeah. And I think he saw this as an opportunity to like revisit that idea of man versus nature and have fun with it. And I think he took it like a little bit less seriously and that's why he pushed Crichton to write a sequel right. and wanted to keep going with it because why not cash in on it? He didn't hold it as precious as maybe some of his other movies in that sense, at least. In the sense of, like, I wouldn't be against exploiting this for a little bit more money. Yeah. But for me, yeah. God, it's, you know, most great directors, it's always hard to say, like, what your favorite is. Yeah. I don't know. I guess, like, yeah, it's neck and neck with jaws but i also love raiders of the lost ark and et yeah jaws and jurassic park are two of my favorite movies of all time so by default they have to be my two favorite spielberg movies so he gets Crichton to write this sequel book Crichton decides to bring malcolm back from the dead because malcolm actually dies in the first book but he doesn't die in the movie 
So the movie comes out in 1997, four years after Jurassic Park. I remember clearly seeing The Lost World opening weekend. It was a huge yeah. opening weekend. I think it broke the record for biggest weekend ever. I, I saw it in the theater as part of like a, a birthday party. And for a kid, it's fun. I was probably like 13 when it came out. Rewatching The Lost World yeah. is tough for me now. It's so lame. Here, yeah, here's the way I feel. <laughs> I think that there's a lot to be desired there. There's, like I said, when I was trying to explain the plot to Lindsay, I was like, I mean, it just sounded like I was rambling. Like, it, you know, because the plot is so weird. It's like, well, there's a second island. Yeah. And the reason there's a second island is because that's a creation of the book. Because in the first book, they bomb Isla Nublar. Like, right. there's nothing left alive on that island. So even though in the movie they don't they don't really explain that or do that, they're like, all right, well, let's just move everything to a second location where, in other words, the park was like a showroom floor, but there's a factory somewhere else where yeah. we're making these dinosaurs, and they're, they're kind of like almost living in the wild almost. So that's where this group of people is going to be sent by Hammond because he wants people to study them and have time with them before the rest of Engen, which is sort of forced Hammond out is going to take them over and, and do whatever they want and kind of ruin the, the natural Island right. that they've got going on there. So he asked Malcolm to go. Malcolm doesn't want to go, but it turns out his girlfriend is already know, there and yeah. somehow he doesn't know. <laughs> this, this is me trying to explain it to Lindsay. Oh, so many points. It could, because like, if you tried to give like your two sentence summary of the movie, it's just like hard to do other than you could be like, they go there and then the T-Rex comes back to America, which is like probably the dumbest thing that's ever happened in a movie. The one thing that I want to say about positive about the lost world though, is I do feel like it still has that Spielberg magic to it a little I bit. Don't. <laughs> I don't, I, I think it's one of his worst movies. Uh, honestly. Oh sure. Yeah. I just don't think there's any desire in it for it to be good. There's no attention to detail, which they did in the first movie. And there's so much reliance on CGI. The dinosaurs are in it so much more, which yeah. is not a good thing, ultimately. And the characters are bland and annoying. Oh, I agree with that. And, I don't know, like, they plant seeds along the way that turn out to be dumb, like, you know, his daughter being in the gymnastics and... Yeah, that part. It stinks. all seems to be like in service of just having jokes, like "Oh, you were cut from the team," or what you know, just dumb shit. Yeah, I I agree. Listen and then the ending is an ab an abortion. It's yes, just yes, horrible. I'm not going out of my way to defend it, but I do think that there there's some things there that I like. But moving on through the story, so then Lindsay was like completely uninterested in that explanation, but was like, okay, so then what's the third one about? And I'm like, basically, they go back to the island. All right. <laughs> and that's three. Well, here's power rankings for me. I think three takes place on the same island as Lost World. It's still, I think so it's still too. not the regular park. Yeah, yeah. Okay, my power rankings are probably a little bit different from most people's, although maybe some people feel this way. I would have Jurassic Park number one, Jurassic World number two, Jurassic Park three number three, The Lost World number four, and Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom number five. Yeah, I would say Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is undoubtedly the worst movie in the series. Maybe one of the worst of this it's decade. It's just an embarrassment on so many levels. I can't believe that that's what they came up with. I think there's a little bit more hope in the new one based on bringing back Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum. 
and sort of blending both of the timeline and not that they're yeah, different timelines I, I, but they're blending it all together but it, it, i don't have high hopes no for it. no no I, and it's it's more kind of like this idea of like bringing the people back it, it always sounds better than it is oh yeah you know the execution of well, it sam neil has got to be like in his 70s at this point yeah i don't know it just but yeah so jurassic park 3 is like the guy in seinfeld who plays like the shitty tennis instructor milos or whatever his name right. is him and a boy are like hang gliding <laughs> yeah. or no they're like what do you even parasailing call it? parasailing yeah. behind a boat to try to see onto the island from the air and then the boat crashes presumably the people got killed by a pterodactyl yeah because i don't know what else it could have been i don't know it couldn't have been like anything from the island it would have to be like a pterodactyl because they factor into Jurassic right. park three yes and so the boat crashes they end up gliding onto the island and then the boy's parents because somehow that's not his dad i still don't really get who that guy even is uh he's dating t leone Oh, really? Yeah. And he takes her son to do something that dangerous. I know. It, it does seem nuts, yeah. So then, like, William H. Macy and Taya Leone are his parents, the kid, and they trick Sam Neill into coming with them yeah, yeah. to fly over the island just to look at it, but then they land on the island, and he's, like, freaking out. Hilarity ensues from there. <laughs> they have some different dinosaurs that weren't in any of the other ones. Yeah. Uh, Laura Dern is in it a little bit at the beginning and then, and then it's kind of the hero at the end kind of which doesn't make any sense yeah i know it is the only thing po- the only reason i have it above the lost world is it's 90 minutes and that does make it yeah. it's a simple story a little bit more palatable the lost world is like two hours plus that ends with a t-rex rampaging through san diego and you're just like oh my god yeah the lost world sucks fallen kingdom the worst Jurassic World, fun. Can't Mostly fun. carried by yeah. Bryce Dallas Howard, who just is insane in the Who movie. doesn't want to see her run around in that outfit in those heels? Just in the woods or in the jungle, basically. Yeah. Chris Pratt actually kind of sucks. He's terrible in it, yeah. I'm not like one of those people that like hate Chris Pratt now, which is kind of like a popular thing. I do like him in Guardians of the Galaxy, oh, same. and I love him from Parks and Rec. But he just seems out of place in the movie. His character stinks. The fact that he's training raptors stinks. They do bring B.D. Wong back. Although he kind of stinks in it, too. Yeah, I and think. He, they, they turn him like into a villain, yeah. almost. And then like Vincent D'Onofrio is in it. Yeah, which is kind of weird. The personal assistant of Bryce Dallas Howard gets killed in the most insane way. And you're like, are, were we supposed to not like her? Because it almost feels like they gave her a death fitting of a character you're supposed to hate. Yeah, it's so over it, the top. That like that's how Vincent D'Onofrio should have died in the movie. It's so crazy. I feel yeah. like there was something deleted from the movie to make us. I I, I think I remember reading that maybe there's. It's just yeah, so it crazy. Right. And then you know the kids are kind of annoying. Their mom is Judy, Judy Greer, Greer, which is always is a fun. plus. Yeah. yeah, are the those kids are not in Fallen Kingdom, are they? Dude, I can't remember. I remember certain things about Fallen Kingdom, but there's a lot that I don't remember. And then there's like a heroes entrance for the t-rex who's like he's the t-rex shows up for like a second you barely see it like earlier in the movie it's almost like an afterthought like oh yeah the t-rex boo yeah and then the t-rex gets used like at the end of the movie in kind of like this insane ridiculous way but you're kind of like cheering i always get like almost teary-eyed from it (laughs) (laughs) because it's like all of a sudden the t-rex and the raptor are are, like teaming up. oh i know to try to fight this 
made up monster dinosaur. Yeah, and then that giant like ocean dinosaur hops out and eats it. It's like oh, yeah. so crazy. <laughs> yeah, I do like that part. It, it's just fun. Like everything that builds to it, it's it, like they give you the the satisfactory ending. So that's why I have it number two, even though it is kind of lame. It's just all of the sequels are terrible. Basically. Yeah, pretty much. All right. Any final thoughts on Jurassic Park? I, I think that's everything. I think we got it all out there. It's our childhood right there on the screen. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those ones that as we've gone through the show, it's always been hanging out there. I mean, there's certain ones that you're like, wow, it's pretty crazy that we're this far along. And we haven't gotten to this yet. Well, if it wouldn't have been for COVID. Yeah. We would have gotten to episode 200 way earlier, and it would have taken place before Greatest October, and Jurassic Park was supposed to be episode 200. Instead, we ended up doing Halloween for episode 200, which works because Halloween is another one of our favorites, but this one gets pushed back one slot to 201. I think it's a fun movie to release on Thanksgiving. Yeah, I'd say so. So here we are. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, recommendations for this week. Do you have one? I have two, actually. Whoa! Yeah, that's a right. A rare... <laughs> well, there was a lot of time to watch stuff during the downtime. I actually started this probably ahead of recording Halloween, I think, or, or right around that time. And I told you that I had been... Watching it, I think, during our meetup to watch a movie <laughs> on HBO right now. We're in the midst of it. Another David E. Kelly created show starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, The Undoing. Have you seen this at all yet? No, I haven't. It starts off. I think the first episode is like awesome. There's like some smoking hot chick in it who ends up getting killed. And that's like the jumping off point. But it's this whole thing of who actually committed the murder and then like things start getting kind of weird too. I'm enjoying it. Although it kind of has that feeling like it could end up being terrible. It almost seems like maybe it's getting progressively worse, but then they do kind of end the episode on a little bit of a twist. So I'm in so far. We'll we'll see. It's still, uh, they've only had four episodes. And then the other thing that I watched a little bit of a shout out to HBO max. So many classic movies on HBO max. HBO Max is great, and my recommendation will be coming from there as well. So I've been, like, watching, you know, there's Criterion movies on there, but there's other just, like, classic movies, and I've been trying to watch stuff that I've just never seen before, and a movie that I watched, I don't know if you've ever seen this, The Arrangement with Kirk Douglas in it and Faye Dunaway? No. It was directed by, uh, is it Ilya Kazan? I don't know how to pronounce it. And it's, I don't know, it seems like it has shades of, uh, like, Wes Anderson inspiration in it, but also, like, it's, like, an ad executive in 1969, so it's, like, kind of reminds you of Mad Men a little bit. But it's basically, I mean, this dude just kind of, like, has this affair and basically has that midlife crisis, like, fuck it, like, tries to kill himself. Like, it's just, like, a crazy movie, but I thought it was, like, awesome. All right, so what were they? The Undoing and, and The Arrangement. The Arrangement, yep. And they're both HBO Max. That's right, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely, like, shills for HBO at this point. Although it is funny because this thing that I'm going to recommend was the first thing I had watched on HBO Max in, like, a couple of weeks. So I had taken, like, a little bit of a break from it after I watched every episode of Veep. But anyway, just came out the other day, Adventure Time, Distant Lands. Oh, shit. Episode 2, Obsidian. 
just wonderful. Just <laughs> Marceline the Vampire Queen. Have yeah, it's all about Marceline and Princess Bubblegum. It takes place a while after the finale of Adventure Time. It's just like a love letter to fans of the show. Like it okay. gives you so many fun things because it does jump around in time. So it gives you like some backstory of the characters if you're familiar with Adventure Time and Marceline and Princess Bubblegum are my two favorites. But like there's like just a a lot of little Easter eggs and nuggets that you pick out and characters showing up at the end and different stuff and it's just great. I had already recommended the first episode Bemo back over the summer. This That's is right. the second one. I think there's going to be two more. Okay. I don't know. Hopefully they just keep doing them from time to time. I know a lot of people who are into animation are annoyed with HBO Max because they have all this great shit on there. Some of it new, some of it classic stuff. Yeah, that's right. Because they and have they like, don't promote network. it. Yeah, like like you wouldn't even know unless you were obsessed with this stuff. That like I just pay attention to Adventure Time stuff on Reddit, and, and I'm like, oh, I guess I should look up when Obsidian is actually going to come out. And I looked it up literally the day before it came out. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, oh, it comes out tomorrow. Yeah. That's awesome. Like, but I w- I had to think to do that. Well, I think that their interface leaves something to be desired too. I don't. Yeah, it, it seems like it still only looks like as if it just has the stuff from like HBO Go. <laughs> like when you first get in there. Yeah. And then there's like you know if you can do some exploring, there's a bunch of stuff there. But I always felt that way about Prime too. I, I didn't like Prime's interface, but it feels like they've n- never really developed it that much further. So the big news with HBO Max just came out the other day that. On Christmas Day, they are going to debut Wonder Woman 1984 on HBO Max the oh, same shit, day yeah. as being in theaters on Christmas. I've seen the promoted up there, so they so are this doing is a good the job big promoting that thing. This was predicted by some people. Other people were laughing it out of the building. Like, there's no way this is that would happen. Well, Warner Brothers doesn't want to fucking sit on this movie anymore. And they're willing to roll the dice with releasing it on HBO Max and in theaters at the same time and just going from there. This is honestly, I mean, I guess it would be hard to tell which was going to be bigger between Mulan and this. I think Wonder Woman 1984 probably would have been bigger than Mulan. So I feel like this is the biggest movie. That first Wonder Woman movie was pretty successful. Yeah, this is like the f- the biggest movie that's tr- going to try this model. It's not a great sign for people who love theaters like us that's right. that this is just going to happen now. Yeah. But I think it's also partially because HBO Max it's so weird. is very underwhelming in terms of their subscriptions, and I yeah. think they want to try to build buzz for it. The idea of going back to the theaters just seems so weird, right? Like, I, I can't wait till we live in a world where it's possible and yeah i know i saw that mank was playing already at the manor and i'm like man if we weren't in the middle of this fucking covid thing we could see the new fincher movie before it's on netflix oh, yeah. and yet i i didn't even consider for that a would second be the, the possibility of going that there. would be like the worst one to go to with yeah. this situation a lot of heavy breathing yeah and coughing at, at the manor <laughs> <laughs> but um hbo max check out i know like i'm probably not really gonna convince people to just watch some random episode of adventure time but you know you can watch all of the seasons of adventure time on hbo max or hulu and you can kind of dip your toe in and experiencing it for the first time and then maybe you'd be interested in checking out these things although i think they would be entertaining enough on their own too i definitely know of uh, some listeners of the show that are adventure time fans so and then 
like BMO was just fun and funny, but it's, Obsidian is like a great. It's a emotional. Yeah. There's sort of just like a portrayal of a gay relationship in a way that is so casual and it's not what it's about that it's sort of almost just a, a normal, refreshing thing to see. And it's, of course, exciting for people who were always pushing this couple to be okay. like a thing during the show's wow. run. And they were always is this sort like of, uh, Adventure Time is the warmest color? <laughs> it's Bubblegum is the warmest color. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not quite, but. It's sort of just a thing that's part of the story without it being what the story is about. Sure. All right, so that'll do it for Jurassic Park. I know that this is going to be a quick turnaround because this is coming out on Thanksgiving, and then we're going to try to get back to our regular like Monday night releases already. And so we have another huge episode coming your way. So a lot of fun stuff for the rest of the year. We're going to be doing some listener requests in January. So if you have one, you know, let us know. Maybe we'll get to it at some point. Yeah, that's right. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. Give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts to combat the haters out there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. We love doing the show. We're happy to be back. That's right. I do enjoy the breaks, but it is nice to Sometimes be Sometimes you need a little refresh, recharge. But we had a long break. We did earlier yeah. this year, so that's true. You know, we should already be at like two fifteen, and we're only—I don't maybe not two fifteen, but two ten yeah. at least. Well, I think you know, with the the big break uh, and just the big break for everyone in the world, I think yeah. you know people are just starved for content now. So here we, we are we'll with pick that up content. The pace. Yeah, it's not like the most delicious meal. No, but it'll fill you up. <laughs> <laughs> not the most healthy either. All right, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. I recall the time they found those fossilized mosquitoes And before long they were cloning DNA Now I'm being chased by some irate velociraptors Well, believe me, this has been one lousy day Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark All the dinosaurs are running wild Someone shut the fence off in the rain I admit it's kinda eerie But this proves my chaos theory And I don't think I'll be coming back again Oh no! attraction cause getting disemboweled always makes me kinda mad a huge tyrannosaurus ate our lawyer well I suppose that proves they're really not all bad is frightening in the dark all the dinosaurs are running wild someone let t-rex out of his pen i'm afraid those things will harm me cause they sure don't
You're ugly, you're disgusting, I'm going to kill you, give me $200.